Good evening, good afternoon, good morning, depending where you are in the world. I'd like to welcome you on behalf of the music team to the Robotic Prostatectomy Skills Workshop uh, webinar. My name is Kurshid Ghani and I'm uh, one of the urologists working here in the state of Michigan in the Music Collaborative. We have an exciting program lined up for you today, but I would like just to take a few moments just to explain a little bit more about music for those who've never uh, been to a music meeting or it's their first uh, time to learn about music. Music stands for the Michigan Urological Surgery Improvement Collaborative, and it's a consortium of urologists and urology practices throughout the state of Michigan that aims to improve the quality and cost efficiency of urologic care provided to patients. And our mission is to make Michigan number one for urologic care. We've been around since 2012 and we have a very robust program on quality uh, initiatives around patients with prostate cancer. Our collaborative consists of over 260 urologists. We have a clinical registry with over 70,000 uh, patients with prostate cases and of, over which 15,000 have undergone radical prostatectomy, mostly robotic prostatectomy. And that forms the backbone for much of the discussion that you'll see later today. We have multiple quality improvement initiatives, and, and we're very fortunate to have uh, seven patient advocates who guide us on some of our, our missions and our programs. Over the years in music, we've developed a video review program to improve the skill of surgeons doing robotic prostatectomy. And this is something that's been led by my uh, partner, Dr. Jim Peabody, who you meet later on. And this is a paper that we recently wrote on the subject. And today, what we're going to hear from is some experts who are going to provide both a self-review and also a review of some of the videos that we have in our online library that J Jim Peabody will tell us more about. We have been in, focused on improving the technique of robotic prostatectomy and we have done multiple sessions over the years on improving bladder dissection, nerve sparing technique, apical dissection, and as well as anastomosis. And the first three are gonna be featured in today's special webinar. Well, what's the purpose of all of this? The purpose of all of this is to improve the technical skills and technique so that it benefits patients. And in the state of Michigan, we record patient outcomes in a systematic manner, and we know some of our data. And what we find is that if you look at social continence, that's zero to one pad, and if you look at three months, 63% of patients in the state uh, hit that metric of zero to one pad. If we look at six months, it's 83%. And we as a state, as a group of urologists have led, uh, developed a target of 75% at three months and 90% at six months. Today's agenda, we're going to see a couple of things. We're gonna have first an introduction to our online video platform that Jim Peabody and Rich Saar will take us through. We're gonna have a peer review learning from our two expert speakers, uh, Ronnie Abaza and Jason Hafran, and we're going to hear about video-based teaching for the bladder neck dissection, nerve sparing, and apical dissection. 
And then we're going to hear a session on beyond the surgery, strategies for improving the patient discharge after surgery. And that includes perioperative outcomes. And we hear from Arvind George on that and also some of our music patient educational resources. And then Dr. Abaza will then speak to us about enhanced recovery pathways and same day discharge, which and all of these items I hope will allow us to stimulate and engage. And we do have a chat feature. So please send questions to our speakers who will be able to answer this in real time. So this is our, uh, our faculty lineup. I'm very excited to, to uh, see how we do over the next two hours. I'm very grateful that you took the time to join us. And I'd like to now pass this on to Dr. Jim Peabody, who needs no introduction. Dr. Peabody is a, um, um, one of the world's most renowned robotic prostatectomy surgeons, integral with its development in the early days at Henry Ford Hospital. And he's been leading our video review program over the years. And I'd like to pass this on now to Dr. Peabody, who will tell us about improving the technical quality of radical prostatectomy in a little bit more detail about our music video review program. Thank you, and I hope you enjoy the session today. Thank you, Dr. Ghani. And Welcome participants to this uh, workshop that we're webcasting um, about radical prostatectomy and how to improve the technique of this uh, surgery that, uh, that we all do. The Michigan Urologic Surgery Com Improvement Collaborative has been very interested in improving surgical outcomes and we've identified three pillars uh, for surgical quality improvement. Um, First being specialization, the idea of having surgeons who do the procedure regularly uh, do the procedure and having surgeons who do it less frequently, maybe not do the procedure. Um, measuring and reviewing outcomes, we've had a very robust uh, database uh, that Dr. Ghani mentioned uh, that has allowed us to give uh, outcomes data back to the surgeons so they can see how they're doing and work to uh, to improve the quality of their surgery and engaging in improvement work, which is the workshop program that we've had uh, through the Michigan Urologic Surgery Improvement Collaborative that we are uh, going to uh, talk about today. This is a graph showing uh, variation in uh, patient outcome for surgeons, looking in particular at urinary continence at three months with a continence definition of zero to one pad uh, post-radical prostatectomy. You can see from the graphic there is a wide variation with a mean of 66%. About a quarter of the surgeon's patients achieve zero to one pad at three months, um, as we can see here. So there's an opportunity for improvement, both for the surgeons at this end as well as the surgeons at this end. And one of the, the tenets is that we want to try to improve everybody's outcome. The video review philosophy is shown here. It's an iterative process of review, uh, looking at the skills, looking at our outcomes, studying the techniques that improve outcomes, uh, talking about these in uh, peer workshops. Uh, images of the peer workshops we've had are shown below, and then repeating the process. It's shown as, a, as an arrow, but it's really a, a circle. We, we continue back through the process, and that's uh, what we're going to be doing today. The video review uh, projects that we've done are shown in this timeline. Across the bottom, you can see starting in October 2016, 
we had our first workshop uh, and there've been a series of workshops uh, through June of 2019 and now uh, today's workshop. During these sessions, we focused on particular aspects of the surgery, bladder neck dissection, nerve sparing, uh, apical dissection, anastomosis, uh, pelvic lymph node dissection, operating on difficult cases. Each of these uh, have involved uh, having surgeons uh, show videos, talk about their technique, and that's what we're gonna be doing today with Dr. Boz and Dr. Hafron. We're also gonna talk uh, a little bit about the music video library. Um, this is a slide that will show again, the library is an open source uh, video library uh, for robotic prostate surgery. Um, you'll see as we uh, show subsequently, uh, videos can be searched uh, based on uh, outcome, uh, that the surgeons achieve as well as uh, peer assessed quality of the videos. We have over 60 videos currently in the, uh, in the library provided by 31 surgeons. This is the website. We'll, uh, we'll show more about this um, a little bit later in the presentation. So uh, I'd like to now turn this over to Dr. Richard Sarl, um, who is the Sparrow Medical Group. He's the program director for the residency program there. Um, and somebody I've had the good fortune to work with for the last 20 years on various projects. Uh, Rich is going to introduce our speakers for the workshop. Dr. Sarl. Uh, thank you, Dr. Peabody. Uh, I want to also thank the, uh, the Music Collaborative and the Coordinating Center for putting together this program this evening. I have the pleasure of introducing uh, two of our uh, surgeon speakers tonight. Uh, one of the speakers, uh, Dr. Abaza and Dr. Hafron. You know, I think that the our, uh, you know, AUA North Central section has a robust volume of uh, excellent surgeons. And tonight we have the pleasure of hearing from uh, two of the, you know, most experienced surgeons in our region. Uh, first uh, up, we have Dr. Abaza, who is the Director of Robotic Surgery at Ohio Health. Uh, I've known Ronnie for almost 15 years when he visited uh, Henry Ford as a, as a kind of a guest fellowship during our residencies. And uh, since that time, uh, he has uh, accomplished uh, amazing feats in the world of robotics. I think if, uh, if there's a dream team of uh, robotic surgery, Dr. Abaza would definitely be in the lineup. Um, he did his training in Toledo and has been at Columbus and now is in, uh, in a different hospital in Columbus, you know, only expanding uh, his vast experience uh, day by day. After Dr. Abaza's presentation, we're going to hear from uh, Dr. Hafron, who is, uh, was also, I have a, a close relationship with Jason. He was, we were in practice together for about a decade. He did his training in New York and then uh, did a fellowship in Cleveland Clinic in robotics and is one of the leaders in Michigan in robotic surgery. And once again, we're lucky to have uh, two surgeons with such experience give us their take on the various steps of robotic surgery today. I'm gonna let uh, Dr. Abaza take over at this point. Thank you, Dr. Sarl. So my technique for bladder neck dissection includes these major points. The most important of these, I would say, is number one, I like to routinely spare the bladder neck, although of course you don't have to, but I also like to spare the bladder apron, which I'll show here in a second. And then probably the most important thing I can say is that I'd like to lower the cautery setting. Uh, and I'll mention that a little bit more detail later. I don't like to use the balloon to find the bladder neck. I don't really recommend that because people's bladder neck thickness is different. And so if you use the balloon, it's not really telling you how thick the bladder neck is. Uh, and I like to use kind of a pinch, a little modification of the Tuari pinch that, uh, that uh, Henry Ford uh, has uh, been doing forever. 
So uh, the bladder apron is basically this detrusor apron or this uh, bladder neck muscle that goes out over the anterior prostate. And as you can see on this drawing bar from Dr. Tuari's publication and from this MRI, that detrusor apron in some prostates will go all the way out to the apex uh, on bigger prostates, not necessarily. Uh, but as you can see here now in our video, when I make my initial incision, there's the little pinch there, uh, just to kind of get the funnel of the bladder neck uh, more obvious to see where the, the base of the um, prostate is going to be. But as you can see, I made my initial incision actually over the top of the prostate, and I'm trying to peel some of this detrusor apron with me and bring that with me and leave it on the bladder side rather than on the prostate side. Now, of course, if you had a higher risk uh, cancer, an anterior tumor, for example, you might adjust this. But on the vast majority of cases, you're going to be able to do this without a problem. And the thing that I like about this is that uh, it allows you to kind of peel that muscle off of the prostate and, you know, follow the contour of the gland down as you go down towards the catheter rather than going straight to the catheter and working in a hole. So I'm basically just peeling back and forth and making a straight line back and forth with my incision. And that translates into an inverted U. So if you look at the prostate right now, it looks like the incision was an inverted U, but it wasn't. It was a straight line back and forth as I was pulling with my left hand to keep constant traction. And you can see that there's very little char. And the reason why is because I've turned the cautery down to 25, uh, or if I'm using the, uh, the intuitive uh, energy device, it's a setting of two. So I really turn that cautery down so that I can see those bladder neck fibers rather than just seeing a lot of black char. And I really recommend that highly. So when I do the node dissection, I use cautery setting of 40. And then once we go to the bladder neck, we turn it down to 25 and leave it there for the rest of the case. So again, very little char. You can see the, the longitudinal fibers inserting on the prostate so you know you're in the right place. And of course, as long as you're not getting into the prostate and seeing that spongy dense tissue, uh, you can continue the dissection. And I use the catheter uh, just like traditionally um, described, you know, lifting up on the catheter. Uh, but then once I kind of get that posterior lip of the prostate released, uh, of the bladder neck released from the prostate, then I'll get rid of the catheter and just go grab it and use the fourth arm because then you can really get a lot more lift on the prostate. And then again, just with the left hand giving the constant backwards traction, that's really critical, uh, keeping that traction, keeping it on stretch. The cautery is just barely touching the tissue. And with that low cautery session uh, setting and just kind of hovering over the bladder neck fibers, uh, you'll see that the bladder neck muscle fibers will just split on their own as they feel the cautery. And that splitting of the muscle fibers just convinces you again that you're in the right place, you're not getting into prostate. And then the special circumstance of the median low, because I think some people struggle with this, especially early in their experience. Uh, one thing is that you have to keep the anterior bladder neck tight, don't go too wide. And then once you see that there's a median lobe in there, don't open up the bladder neck, deliver the median lobe early through that small opening and then the most important thing, again, is to release the corners first, and I'll show you this. So first, you have to recognize that there is a median lobe. Many times the catheter goes off to the side. But as soon as you recognize a median lobe, don't open up the edges and make the, the hole bigger to get the, the median lobe out. You can deliver that median lobe and lift it straight up. And then the first thing you're going to do is to go after these corners. These corners are critical. If you can release these corners off the prostate, then you'll fix the bladder opening to a small size and not have to do a bladder neck reconstruction. So I'll show you that in video form here. So this is an example of a smaller median lobe. So again, we have a very tight opening and we just deliver it, it's like delivering a baby. You just pull it out through that small opening. Uh, and then the critical part is here in the corners is getting over here and you've got to go out beyond the corner, beyond the mucosal edge, and then get down to the detrusor muscle and then pull that edge with you, bring it towards you so that now you fix to the size of the bladder neck and it won't get any larger than this. 
So those corners are really critical. And if you do that, you won't have to reconstruct the bladder neck. And again, notice that the cautery setting is low so that we can see the bladder neck fibers. And then with a lateral lobe, you can do the very same thing. So with lateral lobes, when you don't have a big median lobe, but you have big lateral lobes, you can do the exact same thing. But in this case, once you lift up the catheter, you just grab where the median lobe usually would be. So you grab over here in the posterior lip of the bladder neck, lift it up, and then you can, again, go after these corners, release it. And no matter how big these lateral lobes are, you'll find that you won't have to do a bladder neck reconstruction. So we actually looked at this. Uh, we found uh, 266 out of roughly 2,000 uh, times the patient had a medium large or an extra large median lobe. And we still only had to do a bladder neck reconstruction about 1% of the time and in every case didn't have to leave a JP drain. So back over to you, Dr. Hafron. Thank you, Ronnie. What I'm gonna talk to you guys about today is bladder neck sparing dissection. I'm gonna highlight some videos that uh, from my surgery and try to give you some tips and tricks on how, we, how I do it. Um, I think the key steps in, uh, for bladder neck sparing dissection is identification of the bladder neck, the V incision at the bladder neck, which I will highlight in the video, as well as this step down dissection of the posterior bladder neck is key um, when performing this procedure. That being said, I'm gonna focus on the important first step is identification of the bladder neck. As you can see in this video, we, we've already opened the endopelvic fascia. We've already ligated the dorsal vein. What is key is this first initial move where we draw the bladder onto tension, and then we actually hug the prostate. By hugging the prostate, that identifies exactly where to make that initial cut. I use uh, the endo shears to cut down through the anterior bladder neck. I don't do a lateral incision because I feel like there's a lot of perivesical large blood vessels as well as the prevascular neurovascular uh, nerves that I want to avoid. Once I open the bladder neck, I then grab the Foley catheter and I place it on the anterior abdominal wall very high and my assistant will uh, apply uh, tension to the prostate that will give me that upward traction on the prostate. The next step is the V incision. I really think this is critical and, and really helps me uh, spare the bladder neck. So once the bladder is open, I will take my uh, uh, prograsp and gently open the bladder neck and look into the bladder. And as you can see, I identify the, the, the bladder neck and then do this V cut where I direct the cautery up towards the anterior in similar to the letter V. And I think this really is a critical step for me keeping a small bladder neck and performing a bladder neck sparing dissection. Next is the step-down dissection. And I think this is, you know, training residents for 15 years, this is one of the hardest parts of the operation to teach. And what I refer to when I'm teaching my residents is this kind of uh, model of thinking it as steps and how we progress as, as we move along. So the first step in, in this process is, doing, is incising uh, the bladder neck or the detrusor, and I, and I try to head towards the patient's toes. I'm high on the pr prostate, higher than you think you need to be, but I think that's really important that you need to be at that level um, because that, again, spares the bladder neck so you don't have this wide open bladder neck. And my angle of dissection, again, is towards the, to, the toes of the to the toes of the patient. And I think that's really critical. It's kind of counterintuitive, um, but you have to realize that the bladder neck is attached in an oblique fashion. 
I'll carry this down laterally on both sides until, until I get to uh, the level uh, behind the bladder, behind the bladder neck. Once I'm below the bladder neck, I angle my dissection posteriorly. And once I'm at this level, which you can see in the video, I put a lot of downward traction using my left progress. And then I switch my angle of dissection again, back towards the, towards the patient's feet. I think it's really critical that you apply very firm pressure downwards. Otherwise you'll end up buttoning hole the bladder or ended up in the bladder. And as you can see in this video, I just keep advancing my progress, pushing down really, really hard as I'm cutting the tissue in the retrotrigonal space. And as I get deeper and deeper, I'll get into that glossy uh, vasal tissue and, the, and that glossy level that I need to be at. And if you look in the video closely, I'm just about there. The other key part of this step, besides the downward traction, is that I wanna keep this wide. I don't wanna be in a small hole. So I'll periodically go laterally just to open that up much farther so I'm not in this deep hole. Also, I'm very uh, cognizant uh, with my cautery. I don't, I need to see this step of the operation. I wanna keep it as dry as possible. I typically run my cautery at three, sometimes I'll turn it up to four or five, depending on how juicy the, the detrusor is and how much, if the, there's a lot of muscle or inflammation. But as you can see in this video, I've gotten down to the vas. Again, I'm widening the tissue using a good amount of cautery just to widen that up. And uh, that will allow me to, to start releasing the detrusor from the prostate. Here, I'm gonna focus on the right uh, detrusor attachments. Again, I keep uh, thinning this out, moving along, applying good traction uh, posteriorly to a point where I can get this, you know, detrusor attachments uh, up into uh, a hemolock clip. Um, I like to clip the sides. Here, you can see we're about to clip in a second but I like to clip the sides of the detrusor because there's these very, very large uh, perivesical um, um, veins that can bleed and, and uh, you know, affect your vision. So here's the hemolock clip being applied by my assistant. Typical operation, I will put two clips in. Here I'm incising that with, again, with heavy cautery, and then I'll put my second clip in and I will repeat this on the, left, on the left side as well. And that is essentially how I do my bladder neck dissection. How I'm able to spare, uh, spare the bladder neck, keep a nice small bladder neck. And I believe um, based on my outcomes, that really helps with my uh, early return of continence and my minimal pad use within the patients I operate on. So that concludes how I do my bladder neck. At this time, I'd like to turn it back to Dr. Peabody and Dr. Saul to discuss this further. Bladder neck technique, that's a you know, critical part of the operation to get things started. Uh, one or two bits of housekeeping uh, before we go to the questions. Um, if you're having trouble getting on, um, there's a stage icon on the left side of the screen that you can click that may get you better access to the, the videos. And if you have questions, there's a chat function you can submit, uh, submit questions. So it, it's great to see these, uh, these techniques. Uh, Dr. Sarl, any questions you'd like to start with for Dr. Abaz or Dr. Heffron? I those were great videos by both surgeons. I, I would love uh, the surgeon's comments about how they feel about, you know, Dr. Abaza describes it as a bladder apron. I come sometimes refer to it as kind of a widow's peak of bladder. 
And I want uh, the surgeon's opinions in regard to how the approach of that anterior dissection may impact patient continence and the anastomosis later in the case. Um, Dr. Hafron, what, what are your thoughts? No, I think that's a great point, um, Rich. Um, I think it's very important to maintain that detrusor apron, something to look at. I think it's key when you're doing that dissection, kind of what Ronnie highlighted, is giving that pressure or that pull so you can see the fibers of the detrusor apron. But I really think maintaining continence is you know, getting a, a small bladder neck, I think that I think is critical, not having that wide open bladder neck where you can see the ureteral orifices. I try to keep it as small as I can. Dr. Abaza? Well, before I answer that, I just want to say thank you for having me because uh, this is really an honor. I've been a big fan of music for a long time. And you guys who are, uh, you know, leading the charge are all giants. And Rich was very generous in his introduction of me, but he didn't mention that uh, he's personally responsible for me being a robotic surgeon today, so I owe him a big debt of gratitude. Um, so to answer your question, I would say that honestly, I don't know that sparing the bladder apron, that detrusor apron, makes an improvement to continence, but I think what it does do is that it allows me to get into the right plane early so that I can keep the anterior bladder neck tight. So that way, if I do have a median lobe or big lateral lobes, I'm going to end up having a smaller bladder neck. And then as Jason said, that allows us to keep, you know, that uh, bladder neck preservation and hopefully improve continence postoperatively. So I don't know that the detrusor apron itself is doing anything, but it definitely helps me get into the right plane so that I can follow that down and keep the anterior bladder neck tight. Great. <clears throat> Dr. Baza, you pointed out uh, when you come through the, uh, the anterior part and you start on the, the, the posterior part, you move your retraction from the catheter to grab the posterior lip of the prostate to lift that up. I, I think that keeping your retraction then closer to to where you're doing the the dissection I think that's important can you talk a little bit about that yeah absolutely uh, dr Peabody dr Peabody uh, I learned everything from you so uh, <laughs> you know you're you know my one of my earliest mentors in robotic surgery so you know I owe you a, a huge debt of gratitude as well so thank you uh, but to answer that question you know when you pull up on the catheter, Obviously, the catheter is rubber, and it's being stabilized by the bedside assistant from the outside, and there's only so much pull you can give on it and so much lift you can get when you're pulling on the catheter. So what I try to do is, as early as I can, once I have something to grab onto on that posterior lip of the bladder neck, uh, I'll get rid of the catheter and then go and grab that and lift it up. If there's a median lobe, of course, I'm lifting the median lobe. If there isn't, then I'm just grabbing that median bar as soon as I have something that I can hold on to. And then you'll be able to really lift up on the prostate much more than you can with the catheter. You know, you'll pull the catheter as tight as you can and it'll lift up the prostate. But when you go and grab it and lift it, you can get much more lift on it so that you can get that counter traction that you need that Jason was pointing out is so important because your left hand is gonna keep the bladder neck fibers uh, taut. You've gotta have the counter traction of the lift on the prostate and then you just really are just touching it with the cautery and you'll see those bladder neck muscle fibers contracting and splitting. Uh, you don't have to dig into it. I see some surgeons, they take this cautery scissor and they just dig and dig and dig. I think that's how you get lost and that's how you actually end up in the prostate. If you just keep the bladder neck muscle fibers taut with traction, counter traction, left hand, fourth arm lifting on the prostate, then you're really just coming across and just touching it with cautery and you'll see it split and you'll know you're in the right place and you'll be confident. Good. So we have a question uh, from uh, one of the viewers um, about, it's a two-part question, but the first part is, how do you know when you get into the prostate and, and need to correct, uh, what is the, the visual cue that you use for that? Yeah, so that's exactly what I was talking about, because 
when you when you have that uh, bladder muscle uh, on traction counter traction, it's tight because your left hand is pulling it back, and then the fourth arm is giving you the traction from the catheter or the prostate. Uh, then you see those muscle fibers. You can see the direction of the muscle fibers, those longitudinal fibers, and you'll see them actually split. They'll contract as you touch them with the cautery. When you get into prostate, it's much denser, spongier tissue. And so you know right away that that's not the place you want to be. Uh, so I'm interested to hear what Jason has to say, but that's how I do it. That's what's telling me that I'm in the right place. That's what I look for. You know, quite Jason. Not that I've ever done it before, but when if you do end up in the prostate, you know, you see... You see failure progression. You're not advancing. You're just kind of digging, digging, digging. And what I say is, it, it, you're creating a, a piece of charcoal. You just get this, you know, burnt up tissue that you're not really moving the bladder back. You're not progressing forward. So it's it's kind of obvious. I think it's when you see failure progression and this charcoal, you know, lump of coal um, prostate in, in front of you. Okay, sometimes you get some whitish oozing as you cut into the glandular tissue too. Definitely I, seen that discharge. Yeah, I've never seen it myself, but I. Oh yeah. But I watched. I only saw it in residency. Yeah. Right. Okay. <clears throat> so enough of that. Um, I think we we're actually uh, uh, out of time, and we're going to move on to the the next uh, uh, video. So uh, it'll be Dr. Hefron uh, speaking about his nurse bearing technique. Thanks guys. Now I'm going to show you how I do my nerve sparing. I think the key or my approach to doing nerve sparing is I'm completely athermal. I think this is a significant factor in able to maintain uh, erectile function uh, after the operation and restores erectile function quicker. I really focus now on a posterior release of the neurovascular bundle, a retrograde release of the neurovascular bundle at the apex and mid gland and then integrate clipping of the prostate pedicle with hemolock clips. And lastly, something that I started about two years ago, I'm wrapping my neurovascular bundles with cryopreserved umbilical amnion and Wharton's jelly. I would like to show you the videos on how I do it. Um, so first I'll start with the posterior release of the neurovascular bundles. I think this is a critical part of the operation. Here in this video, you will see uh, me, the start of me incising Denon VA's fascia. I think the posterior dissection as I've you know, accumulated and gained more experience is a really important part because this is probably the cleanest plane around the prostate. There's not multiple levels of fascia, so it's really easy to identify. As I cut through Denon VA's fascia, I'm really trying to find the, the prostatic capsule. And as you can see on the video, I elevate the prostatic capsule and really work uh, hard at finding that plane um, between the, the pre-rectal fat and the prostatic capsule. And then as I worked it apically, here I'm releasing a perforator from the, from the right neurovascular bundle. I look for the cavernosal artery and I'll push that uh, laterally and then as I've dissected that free laterally, I'll really try to create a window between the cavernosal artery, the prostatic capsule, and here I'm just pushing that out laterally. I think, again, the key is identifying the cavernosal artery and then dissecting down laterally to release the neurovascular bundle um, posteriorly. 
Once I've released the neurovascular bundle uh, posteriorly, I'll then do a retrograde release of the neurovascular bundle at the apex and mid gland, and then do anti-grade clipping of the prostate pedicle with hemolock clips. And here I'm making the incision in the uh, levator fasci of the prostate. As you can see, as I start the video, uh, this is difficult. You know, this is an area that took some time to develop the technique because there's multiple layers of fascia in this area. But once you identify that levator fascia and you uh, incise it and you can just kind of brush it laterally. And as you work it down to the prostate, I'm looking for that opening that I created posteriorly. And here you can start to see it open up. I have that window between the prostate and the neurovascular bundle. You can see the neurovascular bundle on the right. I'm just pushing that away from the prostate. I don't put much traction on it. It's uh, almost touchless in a sense and definitely not putting any cautery. And I'll just keep working this neurovascular bundle back till I get to the mid or base of the prostate. Here's some final releases. And if I'm doing a really good job, I can do it from there, release the bundle. But frequently, if it's a large, wide uh, prostate, I'll have to go back integrate, which you'll see in a second, and release the neurovascular bundle in an integrate fashion from the base of the prostate. Here's the integrate release. Again, hemolock clips, totally cold. I'm cutting the uh, pedicle here and getting right onto that prostatic capsule. Um, here's the small perforators that are coming in into the prostatic capsule. I'm releasing these totally cold with, with uh, my endoshears. And here on the left, you can see the prostatic capsule. And then I'm just kind of brushing off the tissue. And here's a critical step. As I release this tissue, I connect what I've released previously and release this little band up here. And once I release it, the whole neurovascular bundle will essentially fall away. I have very little traction on it. I have very little, I have no cautery on it. And this just kind of brushes it away. And I am able to spare or save a nice neurovascular bundle on the right side of, of this veins prostate. And here I'm just pushing that final attachment away. And uh, there it is, the neurovascular bundle on the right. Here is it is on the left. Again, do that lateral pelvic incision, not into the prostatic fascia, into the levator fascia. I carry that down to the side of the prostate. I will use a little cautery up here. There's no uh, nerve bundles up here around the anterior prostate. And I'll keep dissecting here. I use my prograft to create that window that I opened up posteriorly. And then I'll have the neurovascular bundle on the side. There you can clearly see the window. I'll do my release and then try to co connect my uh, integrate and retrograde uh, neurovascular bundles. I am cheating a little bit. I am grabbing the, the bundle a little bit uh, high away from where the, the high nerve tissue is, but it's the only way I've found to get that you know plane of dissection where I can see the prostatic capsule, remove these perforators and just brush away that neurovascular bundle. And this is my final attachment, that apex. And there's essentially in a very <laughs> quick way how I do uh, my neurovascular uh, bundle or, or nerve spraying approach. The, what I've started doing, and this is about two years, and this is one of the benefits of being with music, working with music, is that as we modify our techniques, we can look at our outcomes. And what I started about two years ago was wrapping my neurovascular bundle with cryopreserved umbilical amnion Morton's jelly. So once I have my bundles dissected out, I will use this amniotic uh, tissue, which you'll see in a second come onto the screen, 
I cut it in two slices. It comes by six by three centimeters. I'll add a tissue glue to the bundles and just kind of glue these, uh, this amniotic tissue right onto the bundles. Here I'm putting it on the right neurovascular bundle. And then I will do the same. There's the, uh, for the other side, I'll put some glue on the left neurovascular bundle and then just literally glue uh, this tissue right onto the left neurovascular bundle. So this tissue is uh, basically, basically amniotic tissue that uh, is cryopreserved. Um, uh, they basically take the umbilical uh, cord from um, uh, fetuses. As you can see down here, they remove the, the blood vessels. And as you can see on this panel here, it has a lot of uh, growth factors and uh, other uh, uh, substances that help to reduce inflammation promote new blood vessel formation and reduces scarring and potentially inhibit bacterial growth. Um, again, this is an ongoing project um, that we are looking at and the early data shows that we are seeing an earlier improved return of continence. Um, the uh, erectile function data is not mature enough to make any significant statement on it. But again, working with music, having a, 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 a database and, and, and the ability to monitor our outcomes, we can you know, make tweaks or make adjustments and improvements to this surgery. This is how I do it. Now I'm going to just turn it over to Ronnie. I'm curious to see what, how Ronnie does his neurovascular bundle dissection. Thank you, Dr. Heffron. Uh, so for my nerve sparing uh, and apical dissection, I'm going to spend most of the time on nerve sparing because my apical dissection, honestly, is not that exciting. Uh, but um, I think, you know, everybody on the call, I'm sure, does a great nerve sparing operation. Uh, but just want to share a couple really critical ideas that um, I hope is not too basic for everyone. But I think all of us have been in the, example, in the situation where we thought we did a really awesome nerve sparing and the patient was potent preoperatively. And then we wonder, well, why is this guy not getting erections postoperatively? Um, and again, I think all of us have been in that situation. So I really wanted to point out a couple of uh, things that uh, I really focus on when I do the nerve sparing. Um, those kind of pitfalls, those areas where the neurovascular bundle can get injured that we really need to pay attention to, uh, and then how I kind of navigate those to try to prevent it. And I'll start by showing this picture, which is a really old picture, but I really like it because as you can see here, what it's showing is the neurovascular bundle comes up along the pedicle here, and then it turns and follows the posterior lateral aspect of the gland. So this is really critical because what this picture is showing uh, is the suture ligation here of the pedicle is above the level where the neurovascular bundle turned away from the pedicle. So this stitch here is being put very close to the prostate. If the stitch would have been put down here, the neurovascular bundle would have been ligated before it even turned. So you could have ligated the neurovascular bundle and then hugged the capsule, thought you did a great nerve sparing, uh, but the patient's not gonna get erections. So I'm gonna show that here in the video in a second, but I just wanna show it graphically one more time. So this is what we're seeing when we do a robotic prostatectomy. Uh, these are all borrowed pictures, of course. So as you can see here in the bottom picture, uh, I'm drawing in here the neurovascular bundle. So what it's gonna do is it's gonna come up along here and then it's gonna, once it gets to the prostate, it's gonna turn along the posterior lateral aspect of the gland. So where this clip is being put here in the, in the drawing would be nixing the neurovascular bundle. So really where this clip needs to be in the drawing is much closer to the prostate. The clip needs to be here before, before the neurovascular bundle has made its turn uh, so that the neurovascular bundle is preserved. And then when you hug the capsule over here, you're gonna have saved the neurovascular bundle. And then just looking at it from another direction, uh, you could say from an axial point of view, again, the same concept uh, that you want to take the pedicle close to the prostate before the neurovascular bundle um, has you know split and gone along the posterior lateral aspect. 
So in these, in these drawings, again, all borrowed, you wouldn't want to take the pedicle here. If you took the pedicle here, you would have nixed the neurovascular bundle before it turned because the neurovascular bundle is going to come up here and then turn along the posterior lateral aspect of the gland. So on the bottom picture is actually what you want to accomplish. You want to take the pedicle very close to the prostate so that you save the neurovascular bundle as shown in the drawing. And if you have a big, huge wad of tissue here at the pedicle on the prostate side, you probably nixed the neurovascular bundle. So when you finish your pedicle and you look at the prostate on a nerve sparing case, you shouldn't see a big wad of tissue. Otherwise, you may have already incorporated the neurovascular bundle into your clip. The second place that you want to be very careful to save the neurovascular bundle is at the apex. And so it's important that when you release the neurovascular bundle from that posterior lateral aspect of the gland and you're peeling it away, that you take that all the way out to the apex and ideally beyond the apex all the way to the urethra. And the reason why is because then when you cut across the apex through the DVC and the urethra, you don't have the risk of accidentally cutting through your neurovascular bundle if it's still attached to the apex. Uh, so if you release that during the nerve sparing portion, then when you come through the apex, you'll be able to protect it and make sure that you haven't cut through it. So before I show my video of how I like to do it, I'm just gonna show this example that a colleague shared with me. And this colleague is a great surgeon, does a great prostatectomy, but he shared this video with me so that we could learn from each other. And I'm just gonna show you how he managed the pedicle in this nerve sparing prostatectomy case. Now you can see he's already put a couple clips and come through some of the tissue uh, but here he's making his window uh, to get the, the pedicle isolated from the prostate. And what I would say and what I told him and what I'm telling you know, everybody watching here is that to me, this is too far away from the prostate. And so when the assistant comes in and puts this clip on, look how low this clip is going on the pedicle. Uh, and to me, the neurovascular bundle is gonna be coming up here alongside the pedicle and then turning so that now the, the neurovascular bundle probably was incorporated into that clip. And then now you'll see here another clip. And again, this is different than how I do it because I like to take the pedicle with one clip. And you'll see that in my video, I would say probably 95% of the time, I only need one clip for the pedicle. But see here now that once you're finished, there's a big wad of tissue here at the base of the prostate, the neurovascular bundle is probably in that. And you can see that it got him into a bad plane for nerve sparing uh, because the neurovascular bundle is still here attached to the posterior lateral aspect of the gland. So rather than having landed on the capsule after he took the pedicle, he landed way far away from it, and there's a big wad of tissue here where the neurovascular bundle's probably been incorporated. So uh, I'm gonna show now an example of my personal technique. And uh, just like that other surgeon, and I think probably most people nowadays, I like to use the veil technique. So that veil of Aphrodite, as Dr. Menon described, the idea of releasing that uh, prostatic fascia from the, uh, from the anterior gland. And, and the reason that I really like this and why I think it really helps us do nerve sparing is because it helps us to really identify where to put that pedicle clip. So as you can see here, again, just releasing this off, really what I'm trying to look for is I'm trying to look for where the prostate starts to make the turn on the posterior lateral aspect of the gland so that I know that I can clip really close to the prostate. So that's what I'm looking for here. So there's a little crevice here where I saw I released that, you know, prostatic fat should be able to see that uh, little crevice where I can be right under the edge of where the prostate turned and then I can poke through and make my window with my bipolar to the medial aspect where I already did the, the rectal dissection. So to me, this is critical for nerve sparing. Where you put this clip, where you take the pedicle is where you start the nerve sparing, not after this. If that clip was low, if that clip was way down here, I would have nixed the neurovascular bundle, which you can see over here. 
And I like to use the robotic clip so I can get the angle I want and get it exactly where I want rather than the assistant doing it. But look here, this is the neurovascular bundle right here. And you can see here that as it comes back, it's right there. So if this clip was way down here, I would have clipped the neurovascular bundle. But now I clipped it higher up before the turn of the neurovascular bundle so that when I take the pedicle off the prostate, I'm not gonna have a big wad of tissue there. It's gonna put me right into the right plane and I'm gonna see capsule. I'm gonna be right in the spot where I want to be to do my nerve sparing. So again, I hope this isn't too elementary for people. You probably, most people know this already, uh, but the, the, um, I thought this was just a good example of showing this. And again, how you can just use one clip for the whole pedicle. I only use one clip on each side. Uh, and you can see now it's put me into the exact right plane that I want to be just to be able to now peel the neurovascular bundle away. And again, there's no big wad of tissue there at the base of the prostate. So I know that I didn't clip my neurovascular bundle when I took the pedicle. And then this is just like everybody else does. It's a mostly blunt dissection. You know, I leave the denonvias on the prostate, so I have to sharply incise that as I go along. Uh, but the rest of it is blunt, and you're basically just hugging the capsule, taking it all the way out to the apex. And then again, as I mentioned, I go as far as I can with this. I take this out as far as I can so that once I get to the apex, I can come through the DVC and the apex without having to worry about uh, cutting through this. So if I don't release this now, then when I cut across the DVC here, as you see, I would be potentially cutting through the, the neurovascular bundle. So my technique for apex, as I mentioned, it's not that exciting. I just cut and then oversew it. So I don't pre-place a stitch. Um, you know, haven't done that for thousands of cases. I did that for the first maybe 1500 cases, but for the last several thousand, I just cut and then oversew it uh, with a vitro figure of eight. But the point here that I wanted to make again is that notice how the neurovascular bundle there is already released off of the apex because I took it all the way out before I ever went after the DVC. So now I know that there's no way I can accidentally cut across it uh, when I come through the apex. And then here I'm just cutting the urethra. I like to cut the urethra first, that posterior urethra, let it spring back. And then I can look and see if there's a posterior liquid tissue. And then this is the specimen. You can see we're on capsule just like we want, but more importantly, look at the base of the prostate. There isn't a big wad at where the pedicle was inserting. And that's how I know that I preserved the entire neurovascular bundle all the way from the base to the apex. So that's my nerve sparing technique. Again, I hope it wasn't too elementary, but just thought, you know, showing a few pictures and a video example that might drive it home. And particularly for the newer surgeons, surgeons who are still learning, maybe residents and fellows who are watching, um, you know, again, I'm sure you've had a situation where you thought you did a great nerve sparing, you were right hugging the capsule, uh, but still the patient wasn't potent. Um, it's possible that you may have made the mistake at the pedicle, or you may not have taken it all the way out to the apex and you cut across it at the apex when you came through the DVC and the urethra. So again, I just wanted to share these couple of technical points just to uh, give you the idea that, you know, the nerve sparing starts much earlier than we think. It actually starts with the seminal vesicle dissection uh, because the neurovascular bundle is coming along the posterior lateral, sorry, along the lateral edge of the seminal vesicles. So it actually starts there. The pedicle is critical. The apex is critical. And if you do all of those steps, then hopefully you can get better results with your, with your potency. So thank you much. And I'll turn it back over to Dr. Heffron. Thanks, Ronnie. That's really impressive work. Uh, now I'm going to talk about how I do my apical dissection. The keys to the apical dissection are uh, careful preservation of the levator ani muscles. I really focus on that and will highlight in my video. Early control of the dorsal vein and fulguration of the dorsal vein, I think, is, is very helpful for me. And releasing the bundle, the neurovascular bundle, early, know where it is so you don't have any uh, inadvertent injuries to this uh, nicely preserved bundle that you spend all the time um, 
preserving. Here you'll see is that I will spend, after I've opened the endopelvic fascia, I'll brush off this levator ani muscles, um, you know, so that when I put in my dorsal vein stitch, I won't necrose them. Here I'm doing the left side, I cut the pubo-prostatic ligament, and then again, release all this um, tissue. If I had an accessory pudendal artery at this point, usually they come really close to that pubo-prostatic. I'll spend time releasing it, preserving that uh, accessory pudendal artery. I think those are critical uh, for nerve preservation. Um, and then I'm just using, you know, my left and right arm, you know, some cauter minimal cautery and some blunt dissection to really tease these off, brush these off so that when I do tie my dorsal vein stitch off, um, I'm not necrosing these muscles or I'm essentially preserving them because I do think that they do help a lot with uh, continence. Um, and then here you can see finally using the prograft and that blunt dissection, um, a little more release of the pubo-prostatic, I can really get this cleaned off nicely. I think when I'm using the XI too, sometimes I'll even have to flip to 40 to 30 up um, if I have a low pubic arch and really uh, spend some time there. Here, uh, again, I do this early. I still tie my dorsal vein. I've tried it the other way. I just like to see and have a bloodless feel. I'll do a, a figure of eight suture um, and really get this uh, vein under control so that when I come across it, I have minimal bleeding. Um, and again, if there's a accessory artery, uh, that will be well dissected out of the way. Just do a standard figure of eight suture here or tie and get that nice and tight and under control. Um, again, I do this early. I think the early control also helps with my nerve dissection. It prevents a lot of back bleeding and uh, helps with my vision as I'm uh, releasing the nerves um, during the, the prostatectomy part of the operation. Here, my assistant will just cut my suture and then we would move on. Once we've ligated, uh, I then will, in, after we've done the nerve dissection, after we've released the bladder, we're a little bit out of sequence, um, but I'll use uh, heavy cautery um, to uh, uh, ligate uh, the dorsal venous complex. I think what's key here is not so much what my working endoshear is doing, is the traction that I'm putting on the prostate. I'll put some good pressure on the prostate, but I'll also draw, drag or draw the prostate cephalad. And I think you can really find that plane between the dorsal vein and the prostate. And um, you can really find uh, that avascular uh, tissue so that you can preserve the dorsal vein, avoid entry into the prostate. And again, always the key with robotic surgery is not so much what the working hand is doing, but what the hand at the bottom of the screen is doing and that traction is really critical. Once I've released it as much as possible, I'll work side to side. And you can see in the screen that there is a right neurovascular bundle on the side and I can clearly see it so I don't injure it. Um, usually there's a little bit of an apical vessel keeping that neurovascular uh, bundle close to the apex. I'm very controlled, very dry field. I need to see everything at this point. I'll take a look at the left side. Here's some of the, maybe the start of the prostatic pillars that run uh, lateral to the uh, uh, urethra. I'll start releasing those as well. But basically I'm just going back and forth, um, keeping a good line. And so that I can see everything, here's that final release of the neurovascular bundle. I have good vision, I can see it, um, and getting it out of the way so that I can preserve my apex, I can see my apex, I can see the urethra, 
Um, because I've ligated it and not having bleeding, everything is really well visualized. Here I'm brushing off the left neurovascular bundle, getting it out of the way, um, and then just going down to the, the, you know, the striated muscle of the urethral sphincter, releasing some remaining dorsal venous attachments, and then just going back and forth left and right. I think it's really critical that you go back and forth because we all know there can be abnormal prostate shapes, you know, a posterior lip and anterior lip. But as I can see laterally, I, I, I'm not going to come across a posterior lip. I know the extent of the prostate. I have good vision. And then finally, uh, um, incise the, the urethra, and that will essentially uh, uh, complete my apical dissection. Uh, you can see the catheter. I do this cold, you know, minimize trauma. Um, here I'm releasing the posterior raffe a little bit, and then everything I can see, I know the, the borders of the prostate, um, staying out of, uh, avoiding a, a positive apical margin, um, and you can see the nerves are well away from my dissection so that I wouldn't injure the nerves coming across this, um, at, you know, in the final uh, um, incision or, or release of the apex. I also like to keep that process fully in view so I know where the urethra is. I'm putting good traction back on the prostate so I can find that plane. And then here's just the remaining, you know, posterior raffe attachments. The prostatic urethra has been released. I'm not, I'm staying out of the prostate apex. And that's essentially my apical dissection. This is how I do it. I would like to turn it back to Dr. Peabody and uh, Dr. Sarl so we can open this up for further discussion. Thanks, uh, Dr. Afron, Dr. Baza, for wonderful demonstrations of, uh, of uh, both the apical dissection and the nerve sparing part, two critical parts of the, the operation for uh, preservation of potency and, and, uh, and continence. We have um, questions that are coming in to encourage uh, the webcast viewers to submit questions. We weren't able to get to all of the questions for the bladder neck, but we'll come back to them uh, a little bit later when we're talking about the, the music library. So uh, maybe, uh, Dr. Sarl, do you wanna start uh, with a question about, uh, about the uh, nurse bearing technique? One of, one, of our, one of our viewers questioned the uh, impact of the nerve sparing dissection on the positive margin rate. And I'm curious about Jason and Ronnie's uh, position on how they may adjust their technique based on, you know, the preoperative uh, risk assessment of the patient and their comment on the impact of a nerve sparing on the positive margin rate. Uh, and and how, do you, how do you avoid positive margins? Yeah. Go ahead, your... Jason. Yeah, I, I look at it. I assess risk and I, I adjust my nerve sparing um, based on, you know, the volume of disease, the grade of disease. I rarely nerve spare with high volume on one side. I rarely nerve spare or probably never uh, nerve spare Gleason 8, you know, that can be lethal cancer, uh, you know, and I'm trying to cure him from cancer, that cancer that can, you know, affect his, his, his longevity. Um, but, uh, you know, you know, it's a good point, Rich. And then Dr. Peabody, your point about how do you avoid those positive margins or sometimes, you know, when working with residents or, you know, my initial cases, it's, you kind of get, sometimes can get lost, you know, you don't know where you are. I think what, when I'm lost or I'm not sure, I'm trying to avoid a, a positive margin, I really hone, on, hone in on where, where's that prostatic capsule. You know, I, I, the, you know, if I'm lost, I just go back to the prostate, look where it is, look what, what, uh, the depth that, that I'm at, 
and looking at the prostate will really help me figure out how to adjust. Ronnie, you do, what do you do for, for your, for that? Do you, yeah, you know, that's a great question. And I, I may do things a little bit differently. Um, I, my strategy for deciding on nerve sparing is what I term patient directed nerve sparing. And we published a paper in journal of urology about 10 years ago, which makes me feel old, but we talked about this concept of patient directed nerve sparing, and then using that to decide when to do nerve sparing and when not to, because really, if you think about it, I don't know how important sexual function is to that guy unless I ask. So what we do is we give them the information, the nomogram predicted risk of extraprostatic disease. I explain to them that this gives you a chance that you may end up with a positive margin, may need radiation. And then I leave it up to them. What we ended up finding, and we put it in that paper, was that more often than not, it, it was actually rare that a patient with higher risk disease would opt for nerve sparing unreasonably. It was more common that patients who were candidates for nerve sparing ended up having T2 disease ended up choosing not to have nerve sparing because sexual function wasn't important to them. So I leave it up to the patient. It's a discussion, in other words. We discuss it. If I know that they're willing to take the risk of a positive margin, sexual function is very important to them, then even if they have high-risk disease, I'll do my best to do nerve sparing. I won't purposely leave gross cancer behind, of course, but I have one patient that I can think of who was in his 40s, high-volume Gleason 9, bilateral. He said he wants nerve sparing. I thought he was crazy. We did nerve sparing, and that guy had T2 disease. He's about three years out with a with an undetectable PSA, he's potent. So I leave it up to the patient, let them decide it's a discussion. But uh, again, it's rare that a patient will unreasonably choose nerve sparing, you know, unreasonably in my opinion, but I let them decide it's a, it's a discussion. It's not a paternalistic model, it's a patient directed model. It's more often that the patients that I would have nerve spared on because I thought it was better say, look, I don't really care about sexual function. Just go wide, take it out. I don't want to take the risk. Uh, so, so it's a discussion. So that's basically what I do. In terms of you know, identifying that plane, if you get lost, if you kind of lose where you are, I agree 100% with Jason. You can go back to where you last saw the capsule and where you were last 100% sure you were in the right place and then use that as a guide to get back into the right plane. Sometimes when you get out of the right plane, it means that you're going to end up losing some of the neurovascular bundle to get back into the right plane that's a worthy sacrifice to make. In other words, don't force it. If you get into the wrong plane, don't force it because you may be just propagating, digging into the prostate, go back, go a little bit wider. Even if you have to sacrifice a little bit of that fat tissue that has the neurovascular bundle in it until you're sure you're in the right place, get back on the capsule and then hug it. Has the increasing uh, use of MR uh, preoperatively changed your approach to nerve sparing? In other words, do you use MR to help decide who to nerve spare? So I don't do. routinely get an MRI. I'm interested to hear from everyone on this because I personally, I don't routinely get an MRI in everyone. The times that I'll get an MRI preoperatively, if they haven't already has it, had it for a fusion biopsy or something, is when the patient really wants nerve sparing and it's an iffy call. So for example, sexual function is really important to the guy, but he's got high volume disease on one side and I kind of want to do a unilateral nerve spare, but he really wants me to do bilateral nerve spare. Then I'll say, okay, look, let's get an MRI pre-op because that may answer the question for us. And if we see EPE on the MRI, then we know we're doing urinolateral. If we don't see EPE, you gotta leave it up to me and I gotta make an intraoperative decision. So again, it becomes a discussion with the patient. Okay, Dr. Heffern, how are you? Yeah, I don't, I don't routinely get MRIs either. You know, I think similar to what Ronnie says, it's helpful when you're questioning extracapsular extension and considering a nerve sparing approach, but um, I don't routinely get it. I look at, obviously look at it before the operation and it does, you know, you know, give me an idea of how close or how far I want to be, but I, I don't routinely get it. But if, if you saw somebody with what looked like extracapsular extension, then you would 
refrain from doing a, a tight nurse bearing. Yeah, definitely. I okay. would back off. Okay. Dr. Sarrell? Did you guys have any comment about the relationship of nerve sparing with urinary continence? There are some surgeons that really think that that is a, is a big variable. I'd like your, your comments on that, that aspect of nerve sparing in a different outcome measure. Yeah, I, I agree, Rich. You know, I think the guys at Michigan showed that early, um, you know, early 2000, they had some good publications supporting that. And what's interesting in my uh, neurovascular bundle dissection, we started putting the amniotic tissue over the nerves. And one of the things that we're seeing early, the data is not fully, you know, mature, is that we see an improvement in continence, you know, wow. and we're seeing it earlier in continence. So I think there is something there, and we're seeing that with using this amniotic tissue, that, that we're seeing improvement with continence. Ronnie? Yeah, I think this is one of those questions that we rely on organizations like music to help us answer, because if you look at the literature, you find papers on both sides of the aisle. You find papers that say that we have evidence that nerve sparing helps continence, and you find papers that say there's absolutely no difference. So my personal opinion, what I found from my own experience is that when I used to way back years and years ago, when I used to do a non-nerve sparing case, I was just throwing caution to the wind and I was saying, all right, it's non-nerve sparing, go crazy, use cautery and go wide and no big deal. And those guys had more trouble with continence. And so then I realized, well, wait a minute, just because it's not a nerve sparing case doesn't mean that I should go crazy with cautery and cauterize every little bleeder and whatever. So then I kind of tampered down my non-nerve sparing to be less destructive, you could say. And then I, I saw that difference disappear. And now I have non-nerve sparing pains who just do as well as everybody else. Sometimes guys that I thought I had to go really wide because of bad cancer and they're continent, you know, faster than other guys. So I think, you know, you need the data and the statistics to tell you for sure. But just from my personal gut reaction, I think maybe the reason some people have seen a difference is because their non-nerve sparing operation is very destructive. If you do your non-nerve sparing less destructively, I think you might not end up seeing a difference with continents. That's a, that's a great observation. Yeah. Um, I'd also like to interject, you guys would make terrible political candidates because you're actually answering the questions that we're asking. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so do you guys, what, do you believe in incremental nerve sparing? Uh, this is a question from, uh, from Dr. Lane in the audience. Uh, Dr. Twari, others have written about uh, nerve sparing is not an all or none phenomena. If you look at the histology, the nerves are, close to the prostate, but also a little bit farther away. You can get in a, into the veins that may still allow you to preserve some nerves. So how, how do you think about that? Yeah, I, I used to do that, you know, the interfascial, intrafascial, extrafascial nerve dissection. I've pretty much gotten away from that. You know, I, I, you know, I don't have the data to support that I can see differences in outcomes, um, but I've, I've really gotten away from it. Either I'm gonna nerve spare them or not nerve spare them. Um, I don't have the finesse to, you know, to get into those different planes on a regular basis. And, you know, I, I just, it's, I just, I think if I can't get into those planes or those planes aren't opening up, that's when I back off. You know, that's my signal that there might be cancer there. Uh, so for me, I think that the intra extra fascial discussion is a little bit different. It's a little nuanced compared to the incremental nerve sparing approach. So I never do intrafascial dissection. Um, so I always, you know, hug the prostate capsule if I'm doing nerve sparing, but I do believe there is such thing as incremental nerve sparing, meaning that it's not all or none because the nerve bundle, of course, is like a hammock. It's like a meshwork of nerves. And some of those nerves might be a millimeter or two away from the capsule. So you can leave, you know, one or two millimeters of tissue on the prostate when you feel you need to, and still be preserving some nerves. 
So that's something that you have to kind of do as a game time decision. You've got to make that decision as you're going because I can't see microscopically and I tell the patients that I can't see microscopically. So if you have microscopically invasive cancer, I can't see that at the time of the operation. But what I may be able to see is I may be able to see some induration in the fat around the prostate that's a little bit of a cue that I need to go a little bit wider. And so I'll basically keep going wider until I can see kind of a more native fat plane and then try to save as much as I can away from the prostate because there's still some nerves there. So I do believe incremental nerve sparing can make a difference. Now, if you did incremental bilateral, is the patient going to have a high likelihood of potency? It's not going to be great. But if I did nerve sparing on one side, and then I was worried about cancer on the other side, I'm not just going to go as wide as I can on that other side if potency is important to that guy. I'm going to try to save whatever I can, because if I end up with one and a half nerve bundles, I think that's better than one. Again, I don't have proof of this. I don't have a huge database of music, 15,000 prostatectomies, but this is just kind of my personal strategy. Uh, and I would love to see if, if there's data that you guys can extract from music to answer this. That would be fantastic. Great. So the last question about nerve sparing. What do you do when you've finished your nerve sparing and there's either arterial or venous bleeding from the bundle? Do you control it? How do you control it? Um, maybe Dr. Bowser first and then Dr. Hafron, you can answer. Sure. So venous bleeding, I leave it alone. I don't mess with it. Because honestly, if you try to control venous bleeding, you're either going to put so many stitches in there or you're going to cauterize so much that you're going to just destroy the nerve sparing that you did. Arteries, you got to do something about them. So if, if I've got enough clearance, I've got enough length on that little tiny artery that I can buzz it with my 25 bipolar and not injure anything around it, then I will. Otherwise, you can put a little stitch in it. Um, but, um, you know, again, you just got to try to minimize that, that, um, thermal injury to the neurovascular bundle because you did so much work to try to save it. You don't want to injure it at the very end. Yeah, I'm, I'm similar, but I really try to avoid cautery. Um, if there's arterial bleeding, you know, I'll get a three O vicral and figure of eight it, you know, um, I really don't want to cauterize, you know, put any cautery on the nerves. Um, similar to Ronnie, the venous bleeding, there's going to be a news. I allow, you know, I'm, I don't, I don't want a dry neurovascular bundle. I don't mind a little bit of bleeding there. It's permissive bleeding that, you know, we've never transfused for. So I think it's important um, not to, you know, keep them dry. I think you just got to oversew those arterial uh, blood vessels. I try to avoid cautery at all costs. Okay. And does the amniotic membrane uh, give you hemostasis? Uh, it doesn't give you hemostasis, but to, to, to implant them, you have to uh, spray it with a, a, hemo, a sealant. Um, a hemostatic sealant. Yeah. Um, so that helps too. It helps some too. Okay. All right. Um, I think we're going to move on to the, the next session, which is going to be talking about the music video library, how to access it. We'll show some uh, videos uh, that Dr. Sarl and I will discuss, and then we'll come back for more discussion about uh, the techniques. Okay, after that uh, discussion, uh, the videos that Dr. Hafron and Dr. Baza presented, we'd like to show some of the work that is housed in the uh, music video library. Um, and I'm gonna have Dr. Sarl uh, go through uh, how to access the library, and then we're gonna show some videos from the library uh, talking about these different points of technique. Rich? Yeah, I think, thanks, Jim. I think we're, we're very fortunate to have this resource for surgeons, not only in Michigan, but throughout the country to could review uh, robotic videos that have been submitted by our, our uh, team of surgeons throughout the region. 
and the 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 opportunity in this uh, video library, you have the the videos categorized not only by outcome but by technical performance. And so I'm just going to run through quickly about how the the library works. When you first log into the library, you'll be you know advanced into this first screen. It's the robotic prospectomy video forum. You scroll down and you'll, able, you'll be able to see where you can choose whether or not you want to use a, a technical selection. That's that gear score that we did where surgeons rated all these videos for technical proficiency. Or you can choose to select a surgeon video based on a, a clinical outcome that we've tracked. Um, once you're within the video, you're able to select a step of the video, one of the steps of the operation, just like we reviewed with Dr. Hafron and Dr. Abaza with the bladder neck, the nerve sparing, you're able to select the step of the surgery that you wanna look at. And then you're also able to control the, uh, whether or not you want a high definition view. If you wanna speed up the video to enable it to go a little quicker, you can control the, the speed of the video to be a little more efficient with your time to really pick the part of the operation that will help you get the most out of your time in the library. You know, I think a tremendous amount of work was done by the collaborative and the coordinating center to put this together. And, and we're really fortunate to uh, allow uh, people to see the, the details of the operation. Once again, going back to what Dr. Peabody started today with uh, trying to make improvements in your own operation. Uh, I'm just gonna skip to the next portion where we kind of picked some, some steps in terms of, so this is one of the, the videos within the library that we selected. And this is just a bladder neck dissection. Um, we just wanted to illustrate how the library will work. So I picked this section of the bladder neck and we kind of cut out a portion of the video. You know, I think we're, we're in a unique situation where we're able to look at how different surgeons, you know, perform their technique as we saw Dr. Hafron and Dr. Abaza. And with your access to the library, you can see numerous how numerous surgeons uh, approach different steps of the operation in different ways. And Rich, this uh, technique is similar to what we saw with the other surgeons where uh, as the bladder neck is approached, there's traction placed superiorly, you know, good suction work there to keep things cleared up uh, with a pretty direct approach down to the catheter there you can see. Yeah, I completely agree. I also think it's very similar where, you know, one of the things I, I appreciated watching Dr. Abaza's video is how quickly he identifies the catheter and how that's such a crucial landmark in tailoring the bladder neck. When you have a median lobe or when you have even a normal bladder neck, the identification of the catheter is one of those, um, those key steps. I've always thought that the traction, that the holding the catheter on the inside and the catheter on the outside, uh, you know, pulls that prostate up off the, the posterior surface of the pelvis. I think that's one, also one of the, you know, important steps that if you look at most videos, almost all the surgeons perform some kind of elevation of the prostate in this fashion. Yeah, the the counter traction is critical. The other thing that I think is important is to try to not get too much in a hole in the center once you found the the catheter you want to dissect broadly and have a, a sort of a flat plane across uh, like what's being demonstrated here until you can get through the thickness of the bladder and get into the um, 
the tissue anterior to the seminal vesicles. Some people call it the anterior denovius fascia. Yeah. I think Dr. Abaza makes a good point about delivering the median lobe. I, I always emphasize to my residents, though, that if you're concerned about the location of the ureteral orifices, it's not wrong to open the bladder up more broadly to be confident that you're not violating the trigone. Right. I, I do think I would sacrifice a large bladder neck to avoid uh, getting lost or causing a problem with the trigone. Yep. And they, the other thing that's demonstrated here is that uh, switching from using the catheter to using the um, uh, grabbing the posterior portion of the bladder neck to lift it up to get your retraction closer to where you're working. Dr. Baza's videos really illustrated how the median lobe could be used as a handle in that context as well. This is another section of the video. It's a, a, a you know, it shows that, you know, isolation of the pedicle and then the subsequent placement of wet clips to control those air, the uh, blood supply to the pedicle. Uh, the reason I selected this video, we'll see as the video advances, this person kind of um, starts with this uh, pedicle dissection, but then kind of makes a transition a little bit later in the video and does a little bit more of a modified high release, you know, as you see. Yeah. I think one of the important things is to do a good posterior dissection to set up this part, the more medially you can dissect things posteriorly, the easier it is to understand the contour of the prostate, um, which is really what you need to do to, to figure out where the prostate is laterally and medially, and then how the bundle is going to be interacting with the, um, uh, with the prostate. And wet clips are sometimes hard to get on, so you have to be patient and sometimes do a little more dissection. So what you'll see in this next portion of the video is that the person kind of does a similar technique uh, that Vip Patel utilizes. He kind of goes um, kind of up into the corner and brings that flare of fascia that's more lateral. As the assistant kind of graphs over there, you'll see as the video kind of comes into this portion. And they switch their retraction from the left side to the right side. I think to get this more anterior part, sometimes it's easier to have retraction come from the right side. Yeah. It's nice not to occupy your assistant on the right side doing this, but uh, sometimes to get the exposure you need, that's what you have to do. You can really see this high release, how sometimes you get into that a very nice plane exposing the surface of the gland below the, the proposed area of the bundle. You just have to be patient here. And I, uh, I think if you've done a good posterior dissection, again, you can sometimes fall into the uh, the posterior part here, having released the bundle completely. Now, advancing to the next section, once again, the, the, the apical dissection, there are so many different ways that people control the dorsal vein. You know, some people have controlled the dorsal vein early in the case when they first, you know, do the initial endopelvic fascia opening. Some people are using a stapler. I think in this context, you can see a staple in the screen yeah. here. And so this obviously person controlled the dorsal vein with a stapler. You know, we don't, we don't see really differences in, in outcomes in patients who have a stapler or not a, or a, a suture. And then once again, you see that the, this surgeon has released the bundles laterally and is dissecting down sharply to the, the, the urethral insertion into the prostate. You're kind of moving side to side to really understand the contour of things, again, to make sure that you're not going to inadvertently enter at the apex of the prostate, which is... Uh, a place where we do see positive margins with some regularity. 
And I do think in this case, you can really appreciate some, uh, some preservation of that urethra, you know, into the pelvis. And I do think that, I think that that is something that, you know, impacts continence. And this video is actually selected from the early return of continence section. So that's one of the, yeah, of the I think I, could I be think that's a critical important uh, feature. To leave as much urethra as you can. And I, I like this technique of working kind of from behind on the right side. You can bring the scissors underneath and really understand. You also have to make sure you completely release things. And the surgeon just put the, a grasper underneath to make sure that the urethra is completely uh, released from the, uh, from the rectum. So hopefully the review that we just provided of the video library will uh, give you some uh, tools to help uh, utilize the library the next time you want to review any specific portions of the procedure and just a snapshot of how, to, how the library works. So we want to thank you for your time today in that regard. Okay, thanks, uh, Dr. Sarl, for uh, taking us through how the music library works. And I hope uh, viewers of the webcast will see what a powerful tool that can be. Uh, really, uh, a great number of videos uh, that would be at your disposal uh, to, to kind of learn, see different techniques, uh, some which result in, in maybe earlier continents, maybe some less. Uh, the videos are rated by um, surgeon's outcome and, and peer review of the, the technique. So I encourage you to, uh, to uh, go to um, music, uh, the website, and, and to look at the video library. Um, I'm interested now uh, maybe to start with uh, uh, Dr. Hafron and Dr. Abaza. How have you guys used video review in your practice, either review of other surgeons' videos or your own, uh, to try to uh, do continuous quality improvement? Um, I'm always reviewing videos. I always look at my videos. Um, you know, as I've gotten older, you know, I obviously have less time. But I'm constantly trying to find other surgeons' videos. And now that we have the music library, uh, it makes it much easier to find the videos. They're, every time I watch a video, I, I really learn something. And it's usually a little tweak, a little, a little move that I see. Um, but I think it's very, very helpful, especially to review your own videos outside the operating room. It's a, you know, a stress-free environment. You can really hone in and, and learn a lot um, about what you, you think you're doing and what you're really doing. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. I, I think when you're actually operating, you're so focused in on what you're doing that you don't really know what you're doing. You're not really seeing it well. But then when you go back and watch the video, you pick up on so many little things that you were doing or not doing that could have made the operation easier. So when I was in training, uh, I would go after every video I could get my hands on. And back then, you'd have to go to the AUA and get it at the Da Vinci booth, you know, the little DVDs. Uh, but I would record all of my videos. And in fact, when I first started, when I first came out, uh, we had to record our cases on VHS. We didn't have DVD recorders. So my initial cases are on VHS. And, you know, the early cases were longer, so they'd be on like two or three cassettes. But I recorded all of them, and I would go back and watch them in excruciating detail before my next case, and it made a huge difference. So I encourage, especially residents, fellows, don't just watch videos of the experts like Dr. Peabody, Dr. Menon, Dr. Patel. You know, watch your own videos. Record your own cases. My fellows... We record our cases in the OR so my fellows can go back and see what they do. And I tell them, hey, go back and watch what you were doing on this case because you could have been doing this and retracting this way. It would have been a lot easier. And they do. They go back and watch it. And then the next time I see their improvement. So I think it's huge. I think it's one of the main benefits that robotic surgery has done for us is that we can learn from each other. Uh, but then we can also learn from ourselves because you can record exactly what you see during the operation.
it all yeah. goes back to Dr. Walsh and Dr. Menon's, you know, yeah. lessons that we learned at the, the foundations of robotic surgery. Dr. Walsh com- talked about reviewing his videos. And then as a fellow with Dr. Menon, we recorded all those cases that were stacks and stacks of VHS tapes. So uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's an excellent point you both make. Yeah, this music um, project that you have online is unbelievable. You know, I wish I would have had access to such a thing. 30 surgeons and all of these videos that you have online. I wish I would have had had access to that. And the unique thing about it, which is kudos to music, is that it's stratified by the outcomes of the surgeon. So we're not just relying on the surgeon being an expert, quote unquote, and, you know, being one of the big name guys out there. We know that these guys, the proof is in the pudding. We know that the, you know, the operation that you would watch on the music, you know, library that these patients, these surgeons actually have good patient outcomes. So I really encourage everybody to use it. I think it's a very powerful tool. And just to follow up on a point that Ronnie made, when you're watching these videos, watch how the expert surgeons retract and how they set things up, because that's really how you will make up time and, and have your technique be better. That, that's a subtle thing that, that people sometimes don't, don't think about. Um, a couple other questions uh, from earlier in the, the evening. Um, bladder neck reconstruction, uh, if you are required to do that, and I know Dr. Bazzi, you don't seem to have to do that very often, which is great, but when you do, or do you, there's the anterior tennis racket, posterior, the lateral, how, how do you do that? It, does it vary depending on the shape of the, the opening? Yeah, so again, as I mentioned before, I rarely do it. So I've had fellows who have spent a year with me and we did like 350, 400 prostatectomies and they never saw me do a bladder neck reconstruction once. So it's very rare for me to do it. But when I do it, I do it exactly the way that I saw you and Dr. Menon doing it at Henry Ford, which is do a figure of eight at three o'clock and nine o'clock. Uh, so that's my routine. When I do it, that's what I do. And there was a question I think that came up before that we can try to address too, is whether bladder neck sparing really affects continence, because there are a lot of great surgeons out there who routinely do wide bladder necks and reconstruct and have great continence outcomes. And honestly, I don't know the answer to that. I think you can get great continence outcomes by routinely doing a bladder neck reconstruction. But the reason that I'm trying to keep the bladder neck tight is not just to have a tight bladder neck for continence, but because it makes my anastomosis much more easy to have a round circle and a round circle, and that I'm sewing the two together and I know I can get it watertight and not have leaks at the corners. So that's one of the primary reasons I try to do a bladder neck sparing. It's not just for continence purposes, but it's really just to make the anastomosis easier to get a watertight seal. Because I don't have a JP. Dr. Heffron? Yeah, I, I'm similar to Ronnie. I rarely do bladder neck reconstructions. You know, if I'm if I have a heavy volume of cancer, aggressive prostatectomy, you know, high volume disease, I'll purposely not bladder neck spare and go and come back on the bladder. But if I do reconstruct, it's always a posterior tennis racket. I like the posterior tennis racket because usually when you're wide open, you're close to those UOs and the ureter orifices are right at that where the anastomosis is going to be. When you do the posterior tennis racket, it kind of drops the UOs posteriorly. So you get them away from your anastomosis. Um, When I've tried the anterior technique, it kind of obstructs my vision. I can't see over that area. So I've really, you know, found the posterior technique or posterior tennis racket that works best for me. Good. Couple of other questions. Um, uh, there's one about using frozen sections from the neurovascular bundle or the prostate if you think that uh, you may be too close. And a second one uh, about using urethropexy sutures. So maybe uh, Jason, take one of those and Ron, Ronnie, take yeah, the other. I rarely send frozens. You know, I, I maybe I'm impatient. 
you know, but there's no shame in sending a frozen. If you, you need to confirm something or know where you are, this is a cancer operation and we can never compromise oncological care. Um, I'll do it occasionally if I'm, if I'm way off, if I'm having a bad day, anatomy is not, you know, making sense, but I don't routinely do that. You know, as far as the urethropexy, um, I've never really done that. You know, I never saw value with that. You know, I have, you know, pretty good continence rates. So I don't think that, you know, I, I need to add that step. Uh, and, you know, it, it just never made sense to me. Yeah. So in terms of the, um, the question about the frozen sections, I, I agree. I rarely do a frozen section. I think the challenge, if you do a frozen section, it's sort of like doing a frozen section on a partial nephrectomy. If you do a frozen section from the bed, uh, and then you get positive, well, then what do you come back and resect? And the same question with a prostate. If you do a frozen section and they say, yeah, there's cancer there, well, then what are you going to go back and cut out? I think if you have to go back and cut out more, you're going to have to really go wide. I don't think you're going to be able to kind of just take a little spot and say, okay, we got it now. Uh, otherwise, you're going to have to keep doing frozen sections over and over again until it'll be like a Mohs surgery for prostatectomy, which I think would be crazy. So I think if you do a frozen section, it comes back positive, just go wide and take out what you probably should have taken out the first time. Um, but again, rare that I would do so. Uh, on the question of the urethropexy, I routinely do. I've been doing it, honestly, ever since I started. And basically what I do, it literally adds 60 seconds to the operation. I just put my DVC stitch in, which is a figure of eight through the DVC. And then I take that same stitch and I just put it through the pubic symphysis and then tie it. And I don't know that it makes any difference to continence because I've always done it. So I don't have a comparison group. But what I do think it does is that it compresses the DVC against the underside of the pubic bone. So if I missed anything in the DVC with that stitch, then when I pex it up to the pubic bone, it's just gonna compress it against the underside. So really I'm not doing it as much for kindness as I am to help with, you know, just hemostasis if I missed anything. But who knows, again, this is a question maybe music could answer for us. Compare surgeons who do urethropexy with ones that don't and see if it makes a difference. Right. Okay, um, I think we're gonna move to the next section. I just wanna uh, remind people that there will be a, a poll at the end uh, uh, to ask your comments about the webcast. So if you're on at the end, we'd appreciate if you could uh, participate in that. Um, our next speaker is gonna be Dr. Arvind George, who is uh, an assistant professor of urology at the University of Michigan. He's been with music for a couple of years now, and he's uh, currently the director of the prostate programs uh, at music. And he's gonna talk a little bit about uh, the music experience um, with uh, trying to improve uh, outcomes in terms of uh, discharge uh, and uh, ileus and, and complications like that. So Dr. George. Thank you, Dr. Peabody. That was a great session. I always enjoy seeing the many ways that prostatectomy can be done and how we can learn from each other. Uh, we've worked really hard to develop relevant patient and provider-facing resources that are freely, freely available, not just to our collaborative members, uh, but anyone, and I'm excited to share these more broadly today. The goal of the Music Notes program has been to optimize intraoperative and postoperative prostatectomy outcomes and decrease modifiable readmissions following prostatectomy. The metrics we use include blood loss, length of stay, catheter duration, catheter duration uh, or the need for a catheter replacement, and a provider dashboard provides feedback on an individual surgeon level as to performance, and a practice level report is generated and shared three times a year. 
Overall, despite a number of initiatives, it's really been a challenge to get closer to our target admission rate, readmission rate of less than 3.9%. The rates that we see in music do actually reflect national rates seen in the Agency for Healthcare Quality and Research Nationwide Readmissions Database at 5.7%. In Michigan, mostly we have seen promise, but we'll need to continue to see if this trend continues to hold and most sites as most sites resume normal clinical operations in the wake of the COVID pandemic. Our work to date has included, has included characterizing the nature of post-prostatectomy admissions, understanding the reasons such as urine leak, uh, fevers, lymphocele, ileus, uh, and working to see if there are provider or practice level differences and taking deeper dives into those readmissions thought to be preventable, preventable and, and identifying where changes in the process could have, made, could have made them avoidable. Ultimately, we have found that the number one potential modifiable cause of readmission remains post-operative ileus. Patient-facing resources have been developed, as seen here, that focuses on education surrounding diet and activity following surgery. Additionally, it highlights signs and symptoms of ileus um, and also when to seek additional help. We encourage physicians to also reinforce this education preoperatively um, and also at the time of discharge. Music has recently employed lean methodology to the radical prostatectomy pathway. Lean is a process improvement strategy and music has partnered with some high volume surgical practice that also have a higher uh, readmission rate in an effort to understand what the key drivers are in their hospitals. These factors are often site specific and areas for improvement have included streamlining preoperative education, establishing a single phone number for patients concerns and questions uh, where we've seen there may be multiple phone numbers that patients are prompted to call. Uh, developing a standardized post-operative pathway between multiple surgeons within the same practice who also operated uh, across different hospitals, and also creating a post-operative follow-up process, um, at which point potential issues are identified early on and addressed, and unanticipated questions can be answered at that time. In addition, we hope that the, eliminating the use of opioids in an uncomplicated radical prostatectomy uh, can help redu reduce the GI-related uh, complaints post-surgery. The Michigan Pain Control Optimization Pathway was introduced to limit the use of opioids following radical prostatectomy. The MPOP pathway requires that patients are discharged with six pills or less of five milligrams of oxycodone with a goal of less than 10% of patients requiring refills. This initiative is supported financially by Blue Cross Blue Shield of Michigan and additional patient and provider facing resources have been made available to help manage expectations and give guidance for alternative non-narcotic pain management strategies. A pilot evaluation of opioid-free prostatectomy at Michigan Medicine has been underway since February, March of this year. And we aim to implement this statewide by January of 2021. Finally, a tremendous resource has been developed and is now freely available. The Music Radical Prostatectomy Patient Educational Video reviews, reviews common post-operative concerns, including diet, uh, activity, um, drain and catheter management, and pain control following surgery. We encourage providers to include, a, uh, include this, uh, this link that you see here or even the QR code here in discharge paperwork uh, and have patients view this video uh, immediately prior to discharge. We hope that the continued initiatives and the novel educational resources that we've developed will continue to have a lasting impact on readmissions following prostatectomy. Thank you. And we will welcome questions at the end of the session. Prior to that, I'd like to bring back Dr. Abaza, 
to share his remarkable experience with continually improving uh, perioperative prostatectomy pathway. Thank you, Dr. Abaza. Thank you, Dr. George. And I just want to briefly thank everyone again for including me in this. I'm such a huge fan of music and uh, really congratulate everyone who's participated in over the years and all the great work that's been done. Uh, so thank you much to the organizers of this session, but also the organizers of music and, and every single urologist who's been a part of it. Uh, so I changed the topic of this talk a little bit from the title that I was given, and I'm calling it Incremental Improvements in Robotic Prostatectomy Perioperative Care. And the reason I changed it is because robotic prostatectomy now has been around for about two decades. And so you might wonder, is there really any room left for us to make an improvement in this? Uh, especially when masters like Dr. Peabody and Dr. Menon have been doing it for so long and have made it such an amazing operation. Uh, is there really any room that we can improve it? Uh, well, certainly people have tried to improve the surgical approach. They've made improvements like, for example, we've got the SP robot now. People are trying to do a better job with SP if we possibly can. Uh, and then the Retzia sparing approach, the idea of doing the operation extraperitoneally, all of this will have probably some incremental improvement, not a huge major dramatic improvement, but some incremental improvement in the actual technical operation. But in the perioperative care, I think there are also some opportunities for again, just some small incremental improvements, ways that we can potentially improve the care of the patients. If you look at the premier database uh, from 2008 to 2015, you'll find that the mean length of stay after prostatectomy is still 1.4 days. Uh, that means on average, patients are staying one or two days in the hospital. Um, and, and that may be an opportunity for us to improve. So from my personal experience, for the prostatectomies that I did at Ohio State between 2008 and 2012, uh, about 1,500 cases, uh, during that time, the vast majority, about 99%, went home on post-op day one. And at that time, we weren't really thinking about doing a same-day operation. Uh, but as you can see, the readmission rate was very low, um, and the mean length of stay translated to 1.01 days. Uh, when I moved to where I am now at Ohio Health uh, in 2013, um, between that time and 2016, I just continued exactly what I was doing. I just assumed everybody had to stay overnight, and so that's what we did. And again, about 99% of the patients stayed overnight, and they did well. So the question that came to my mind at sometime around 2016 was, can we send these patients home the same day? And the reason this idea came up, it came up for multiple reasons, but one of them was because on the day of surgery, when we'd go up to the floor to check on the patients, we'd see them walking around making laps on the floor and wondering, why is this guy even in the hospital? He looks great. And so if you look at the example of laparoscopic cholecystectomy, you already know that the majority of these patients go home the same day. Now, that it wasn't that way when it started. Lap coli didn't start as an outpatient surgery. Uh, patients used to stay in the hospital two or three days, and then it incrementally got better and better. Uh, as the technique was uh, obviously improved and became widespread. So if you look at a robotic prostatectomy patient, there's not a huge difference between the two in terms of their incisions, the pain you would expect them to have. Uh, you know, from just a purely minimally invasive operation, there's not a big difference. And in fact, uh, we recently have changed our approach uh, for prostatectomy to now doing a four-port approach. So I use the fourth arm, but I only use four ports and I got rid of the assistant port. So I'm really just using a 12 millimeter port at the umbilicus and then three eight millimeter ports. And so really it's even more now like a lap coli. So can these patients go home the same day? So we started in 2016, as I mentioned, we started giving patients the option of going home the same day after robotic prostatectomy. And it's important to make the distinguishing uh, comment that we weren't mandating it, we weren't forcing them to go home, we were just giving them the option. 
And we did this because we found that the vast majority of the time when there were complications, it wasn't in the first 24 hours. It was a week later, two weeks later, or at least several days later, so that we felt comfortable with our data, just going back and looking at our data, that it would be relatively safe to send patients home the same day uh, if they did well. Uh, and what I found was that many patients actually prefer going home. They don't want to sleep in the hospital. They don't want to eat hospital food. And this includes my mom, uh, who had a laparoscopic uh, cholecystectomy. And even though she had a lot of nausea, she refused to stay in the hospital. She insisted that we take her home. And then this actually was even more dramatic when COVID struck, because then patients were afraid of staying in the hospital overnight. They wanted to get out as quickly as possible. And I'll show you how that impacted our data. So how do we do it? Well, one is, uh, and probably the most important factor is setting patient expectations. And we do this from the very first visit. Before I even see the patient, we have a little video that they watch on the iPad that talks about robotic prostatectomy, what to expect before and after. And we include in that, that if you're feeling well and everything goes well, you're doing well, we'll let you go home the same day. Not that we force you, but again, we give you the option. Uh, and we didn't change our contact points. We don't call the patients eight times you know, that night or something like that. We don't send them to a hotel or some outpatient you know, nursing facility. They go to their homes. And that's despite them coming from far away. The average patients are coming about 71 miles from our hospital. So it's about an hour and a half drive for the majority. Some of them come from two or three hours away and they're still able to go home the same day. We don't, we, we don't set that as a limitation in other words. Uh, we don't discharge them from the recovery room after prostatectomy. We tried that for a little while and we found that it was hard for the nurses in the recovery room uh, to go through all the teaching and catheter care and all these things. And so they really didn't want to do it. They felt more comfortable if the patients would go to the floor. So we send them to the floor, we get them up walking, give them something to eat. So on average, they end up spending about five hours after surgery. Some people faster, some people take a little bit longer, but on average, they end up staying about five hours uh, after the completion of the operation between recovery room and floor. Now, it's important to mention too that patients are still gonna have complications. So it's really important that the patient is comfortable going home the same day because the worst thing in the world that can happen is if they have a complication, even if it's a week later, you don't want them to look back and say, oh man, this is because you sent me home the same day, I should have stayed in the hospital. Uh, and to be honest with you, uh, after about 600 patients who went home the same day, just recently, a few weeks ago, we had the first patient where I really said to myself, man, I wish we would have kept this guy overnight. Uh, and part of the reason of that was because the family mentioned to me after the fact, you know, because he had a complication, the family said, you know, oh, you know, we wish you hadn't sent him home so quickly. So uh, part of that was because of COVID and we didn't have a chance to really talk about it as much because the family can't come in to see him in the office, to see us um, in the office with the patients and, and post-op, you know, only one person can be there in recovery. So anyway, it, it was a, a problem just from a social relations point of view. Uh, and that's why it's so important to set the expectations for the family, for the patient ahead of time. Uh, because again, sometimes you will have complications and you don't want them to think it's because they went home the same day. You want it to be a mutual decision that everyone was comfortable with it. Uh, now, uh, our pathway that's been standard since 2008 is that we avoid narcotics. We get them up walking right away. We give them regular diet right away. It's not advanced as tolerated. Uh, I've not used a JP drain uh, for prostatectomies uh, since around 2006. Uh, we don't wait for flightus. We send them home even before they pass gas. But again, we explain to them that it may be a couple days before their bowels get back to normal. So they know that they expect that. We don't change our pathway regardless of the patient's age, their BMI, how long the operation took. Uh, and really, I think this narcotic avoidance is critical. And, and again, I've been doing this for the last you know, 15 years, uh, but now it's really everybody knows how important it is. So um, we never give IV narcotics. So the patients never get morphine or fentanyl or anything 
uh, post-operatively. We let anesthesia do whatever they need to keep the patient asleep. But after surgery, we don't do any IV narcotics. We tell the patient, we educate them about the need to avoid PO narcotics as much as they can. So take Tylenol. If that doesn't work, we're going to give you a prescription for oxycodone. Only fill the prescription if you need it. With the opioid epi epidemic, patients nowadays are much more aware they understand. But the reason we're avoiding narcotics, especially IV narcotics, is because, of course, it can cause an ileus, it can cause constipation. Uh, for older patients, it can cause mental status changes. It can give them nausea and make it so that they don't want to eat. And also, just the idea of reducing the sick role. If they feel comfortable taking oral medications for their pain, uh, then they're going to be more comfortable going home knowing that they have oral medications if they need it. Um, so again, patient education is really key to avoiding narcotics. Uh, they have to understand that we're not trying to shoot for a pain level of zero. You know, you just had surgery. Your pain level is not going to be zero. We'd have to pump you with morphine to get you there. We're really shooting for a pain level of around two, maybe three at most. So whatever you need to be comfortable, that's what we're shooting for. Uh, we use Marcan at the incision, which I think most people do. We give scheduled Toradol. So we give them Toradol before they wake up from surgery. Uh, we give them a liter of fluid bolus. So once we finish the prostate and we're doing extraction, I say to anesthesia, give them Toradol and a liter of fluid. Uh, so that way we're catching up on the fluids before they even hit recovery room. They get the Toradol in their system before they wake up. And then we give them Tylenol for pain, oxycodone only for breakthrough. We send them home with a prescription with 10, for 10 tablets, but we tell them again, only fill this if you need it. And then more recently, within the last couple of years, uh, we've been using ultra-low pneumo. I can't prove that this makes a difference, but I'll touch on it just briefly here for a second. Uh, then I already mentioned now that we went to four ports instead of five. We got rid of that assistant port. It used to be a 12 port going right through the rectus. We got rid of that. We went to an eight port air seal, and now we got rid of that. And so we really have four ports, and none of the ports are going through the rectus muscle. Um, other things that other people have done, people have described using Celebrex, using Neurontin. Some people do IV lidocaine, tap blocks, Expirel. Honestly, I don't do any of these things. I, you know, these things are really nice. They maybe are, can make things better, but uh, you don't have to do any of these fancy things to be able to send your patients home the same day. But if you want to do them and you think it helps, then absolutely do it. Patient education I mentioned is really key. And we include the narcotic avoidance. We include the option of same day discharge in all of our patient education materials, including the book that we give them pre-op, which is here on the left. Uh, and then this is the sheet that the nurses on the floor go through with the patient before they go home. And again, that's the last um, touch point they're gonna have before they go home. That also includes all of these things that we're talking about, all of these patient education points. It's so important that you just reiterate it over and over again. And then we give patients this little medical alert card. It's a wallet card that we give them uh, before the surgery and we tell them, keep this in your wallet. And if you have any problems after the surgery, pull this out and read it. And then on the flip side is what they give if they go to the emergency room or they get readmitted to some other hospital, we say, give this to the providers. And on this card, it tells them, call us before you go to the ER, call us before you, uh, you know, um, have a, you know, for any kind of problems, because so many things you can handle over the phone. And then most importantly, it says, do not let anyone touch your catheter without calling us first. And then on the medical alert, the part for the providers, it says, do not give enemas, laxative, or other treatments without contacting us. Do not remove or manipulate the patient's folded catheter without contacting us first. So, you know, again, these are just ways of additional patient education so that we can prevent any problems once they get home. So that if they do go home and have an issue, they know to call us. They don't end up in some random ER, you know, with people doing things to them that might scare us. So um, I mentioned the ultra-low pneumo. We use the aerosol system to achieve this. Uh, and again, I've been doing this since about 2016. 
And at that time, we were doing a, a clinical trial of standard versus air seal. And what we found was that actually we could turn the pneumo all the way down to a pneumo of six. And we were able to do now over a thousand consecutive prostatectomies at a pneumo of six, regardless of BMI. People always ask me, what if the guy's BMI is 45? Honestly, we can do it at six. It's not a problem. And it really doesn't uh, make it um, harder once you get used to it. We've got a randomized trial that we're doing right now. We're over halfway through it um, between using six versus 15. Uh, but um, just the outcomes that we've found so far, we presented this at the AUA a couple years ago. And what we found, this wasn't randomized though. This is just retrospective data. What we found that there was a, a mild improvement in pain scores at a pneumo of six. But really the dramatic thing that we've noticed is that anesthesia has a much easier time ventilating these people, especially the big guys at a pneumo of six. So when we take that guy with a BMI of 45, put him in T-Bird and fill his belly up with gas, uh, with a pneumo of six, it's actually not a problem. At 15, we've had cases where we couldn't do it. Uh, but once we switched to six, we've never had that problem anymore. We don't have that scrotal edema post-op anymore because at a pneumo of six, the scrotum doesn't balloon up with gas. It looks like a normal scrotum the entire case. So postoperatively, it's not backfilling with fluid and the patients aren't walking around with a cantaloupe between their legs. We don't see the shoulder pain anymore. This has really shocked me. When I was in med school, they taught us that you get shoulder pain from laparoscopic surgery because the gas left over goes up to the diaphragm and causes diaphragmatic irritation. You get referred pain in the shoulder. Uh, now I believe that's a load of BS uh, because we're still putting gas in their belly. There's still gas left over. We can't get it all out, but we don't have shoulder pain. And I think the reason why is because we have such a low pressure at six instead of 15, we're not stretching the perineum the entire case, and we don't have that pressure on the diaphragm to be pushing against that pneumo of 15 for two hours. Uh, so the patients wake up and there's no shoulder pain anymore. And does it improve bowel function to have a lower pneumo pressure of six instead of 15? I don't know. We haven't looked at it yet, but again, we're doing a randomized trial now, and I hope to be able to tell you in the future. And then the avoidance of drains. Uh, I hate drains. I don't use drains. Uh, we just presented this at the World Congress uh, last year. And as you can see here, uh, out of 3,421 prostatectomies, I used a drain in only 0.4% of the patients, uh, which is um, um, only 14 drains uh, out of 3,421 patients. Uh, we did have three urine leaks though. So in those three cases, you could say, well, you could have avoided those three urine leaks had you left the drain, but that means we would have had to leave an unnecessary drain in 99.6% of patients uh, to avoid those three urine leaks. Um, so in my opinion, I think if you can, you know, be confident of your anastomosis, you test it intraoperatively, it doesn't leak, um, you know, you don't have to leave a drain. So I did leave a drain 14 patients. So on the rare occasion that you did your best possible anastomosis and you just can't get comfortable or you still see a leak, then you leave a drain. But in the vast majority of time, you can avoid a drain. Why do I mention this? It's because when you don't leave a drain, it's easier to get the patient home the same day. You know, if you're going to send the patients home the same day, but you leave the drain in all your patients, now the patient has to keep track of the drain, measure the outputs. Well, how long are you going to leave the drain in? When are they going to come back to get it out? Uh, all of these become issues that you can avoid if you avoid drain placement. And I do the same thing with partial nephrectomy, pyeloplasty, all of these other cases. I avoid drains. Um, really like the devil. I hate drains less than 1% of the time. Um, so uh, I just want to refer you to the, our publication in the Journal of Urology last year. Uh, for same-day discharge after robotic prostatectomy. It has more details about our protocol, uh, but I've mentioned most of the important points. And basically in that series of patients, um, that was the first 500 patients that we did after 2016 starting to offer same-day discharge. And we were able to get same-day about half of the time. Uh, so the mean length of stay was 0.51 days. Again, from that average that I mentioned at 
at the beginning from the premier data for national, it's 1.4. So we've gotten it from 1.4 to 0.51. And as you can see there, we didn't have a huge number of you know, ER visits and readmissions and whatever. In fact, what we found was that there were less in the patients that went home the same day, probably because they were self-selecting. If they felt comfortable going home the same day and wanted to, then they were less likely to be somebody who's gonna get nervous and end up in the emergency room or end up in the office or readmitted. So we estimated that we saved about $345,000 uh, in this series of 500 patients. So this is just one of the tables from that paper. And uh, you can see again, the average distance traveled was about an hour and a half. Um, so that's not a limiting factor. And it wasn't different for those who went home or stayed overnight. Uh, and then um, the, the time of day of the case definitely makes a big difference. So we found that if they were the first or the second case of the day, they were much more likely to go home the same day than if they were the last case of the day. Just because by the time they're hitting the floor, it might be eight o'clock at night. They get them up, walk and give them something to eat. Now they may say, you know, I don't really want to drive an hour and a half to get home. So we let them stay. We, again, we don't force anybody to, to go home the same day. It's, it's an option. Um, and then we really didn't find any difference in the pain scores postoperatively. So it wasn't like the people who were staying overnight was because they were having so much more pain. Um, but sometimes that happens. If they're having pain, they're not comfortable going home, we let them stay. And again, as I mentioned, uh, we actually had less complications and readmissions in the patients who went home the same day compared to the ones who stayed overnight. Now, I'm not saying that sending home patients the same day is going to reduce your complication rate and reduce your readmissions. I I'm not going to make that claim. What I'm saying is that because we're allowing them to self-select, I think the patients who want to go home the same day and end up going home the same day are less likely than to, to end up uh, in the emergency room and, and um, you know, being readmitted, um, you know, whether it's legitimate or not. So complications, again, um, we found less complications and readmitted with same day compared to patients who stayed overnight. Uh, but again, I think that's because of the self-selection rather than anything that, um, you know, same day is changing about their postoperative course. Uh, so this is our updated experience now, you know, since that paper that we published last year, obviously we've continued to do what we're doing. Um, and now we've got about 56% of the patients going home the same day. So our mean length of stay now is under 0.5. Uh, and uh, since we started doing this in 2016, we estimated that we saved probably about $700,000. Well, it's not only for prostate. I'll mention that too. I don't want to go into too much detail because we're talking about prostate tonight. Uh, but uh, we use the same pathway for partial nephrectomy, pyeloplasty, really all of the procedures that we do other than cystectomy because of the bowel that we use for the diversion. Uh, so for all of these robotic cases, really every robotic case I do, we offer the patients a same day discharge and we have variable success. Uh, we found, for example, that prostatectomy, again, it's over half, pyeloplasty, same. Most of the adrenals, three out of four adrenals go home the same day, but it's harder to get the nephrectomies. About one in four nephrectomies go home the same day, uh, even less of the partial nephrectomies. And this is usually, honestly, because uh, many times these are the third case of the day that I'm doing. So I usually do two prostates and a kidney, for example. So they're less likely to go home, but we offer it to everybody. And then what we found is over time, we've gotten better at it, both with our, you know, talking to the patients about it and explaining it and their comfort level with it. Uh, and, you know, being able to tell them that, look, we've had hundreds of patients who've had this operation and they've been able to go home the same day. So if you feel good and you want to go home the same day, we'll let you. Uh, so being able to tell them that and our experience has made it easier. So as you can see there in 2016, when we started, only about 22% that year went home the same day, but it's gotten increasingly more. In 2019, it was two thirds of the patients. And then this year before COVID hit, it was 81% of the patients. Once COVID hit, as I mentioned, people didn't wanna stay in the hospital. It was hard to convince them to stay if they needed to. 
And so you can see they're 98% during the COVID crisis. And then, you know, since they opened surgeries back up uh, for elective surgeries, uh, it's been 98%. But um, I don't think this is really the natural uh, state. So after COVID is over, I think we'll probably go back to more like maybe 70, 80%. Uh, but right now, patients are really scared to stay in the hospital. And they, so they, they really want to leave, even if they're having a little nausea or they're having some dizziness or whatever. Um, so I think this is probably too high of a level. I think probably 70, 80% is probably a more reasonable level to shoot for. Uh, but since COVID, this is actually what's happened to us. Um, and one thing that I'll mention though, before I move on from this slide is that the fact that we've been able to go up over the years and the fact that with COVID, we've actually been able to go to 98% tells me that this is probably more patient attitude than anything else. Meaning that there's probably not a medical reason that these people need to stay overnight. It probably has more to do with their comfort level and how they're feeling and whether they feel confident going home that they're going to have good caregivers and, and not going to have a problem. So the take home message is, again, avoid narcotics, whether you keep them overnight or you send them home the same day. You know, obviously, we should be trying to avoid narcotics, never use IV. Uh, and then, you know, really the, the pre-op teaching and just at every step of the way, just reiterating to the patients to avoid the narcotics, only take it if you need it. And then my personal preference that if you can avoid drains, avoid drains. Um, and I, I talked to a lot of surgeons who routinely use drains. There are some surgeons who need drains because they have problems every so often. But the vast majority of the time when I talk to urology colleagues, they do amazing anastomoses. They don't need a drain. They're just in the habit of doing it. It's a crutch, in other words. And so when they really think about it, they start to think, you know what, I probably could do without the drain. And then you just phase your way into it. So start out by using drains selectively. And then once you get more and more comfortable, you eventually can get away from it and use it um, only when you absolutely have to. And then I would say try the low pneumo. Again, we're doing the randomized trial. I don't have level one evidence for you yet, but I hope to soon. But just from we've, what we've seen so far in over a thousand prostatectomies, I think it makes a huge difference. So I would say you don't have to go to six, but if you're using 15 or 12 routinely, try 10. And then if that works okay, try eight. You may go down to six and then you find, well, this guy's too obese. We need to turn it up. No problem. You didn't lose anything. Uh, but the idea is just try it because I think what you'll find is that the vast majority of the time, it doesn't make any difference. You won't notice any difference in bleeding. You won't notice any difference in visibility. Um, you know, you, I think what you'll find is that you can do it the vast majority of the time. And then when you see the results in your patients and how much better they look, uh, I think you're going to be convinced. And then I would say consider same day discharge. Again, you don't have to do it overnight. You know, start with prostatectomy because that's your most common procedure. Uh, and then just do it selectively. Again, patient education, offering it, seeing who, you know, wants to do it, who doesn't want to do it. Uh, and then just give the patients the option to let them decide. If they're comfortable, they'll go home the same day. Uh, and then uh, over time, I think you'll find that um, the patients are going to be happy. You know, that again, what I've found is that the patients, the vast majority of the time, um, they want to go home because they'd rather sleep in their own bed. They'd rather have their family taking care of them instead of nurses waking them up at 2 a.m. Uh, they'd rather eat home-cooked food rather than hospital food. Uh, so just getting them home faster um, doesn't really reduce patient satisfaction. If anything, I think it increases patient satisfaction as long as you give them the option and not force them. If you force them, then, of course, patient satisfaction is going to go down. And as I mentioned, after hundreds of cases, we recently had a patient where I really regretted it. And... Um, so, um, you know, again, you're going to have complications once in a while. You're going to have, uh, you know, uh, situations where you might uh, regret it. But I think you're going to find, as I have, that it's extremely rare. And if you give the patients the option to let them choose, the vast majority of the time, um, you know, they're going to be happy and you're not going to have complications or readmissions. So thank you again for the opportunity to share this. I'm looking forward to the discussion. So we'll turn it over to the discussion now. And please feel free to grill me with questions and 
and you know, give me the really tough ones. Um, because again, I, I'm not pushing this. I, I don't have any you know personal benefit to to push this. Uh, it's really just a suggestion that I'm making from my own personal experience and potentially just little ways that we can maybe incrementally improve the operation that we already do so well as a society. And, and you know, again, learning from the masters like Dr. Peabody, Dr. Menon, and many of the other surgeons, uh, you know, Rich Sarl and Dr. Heffron, you know, many of the other people who are on this call tonight, you know, I've learned so much from you guys. So it's, a, it's an honor to be able to share some of the little things that, that uh, you know, we've been able to hopefully contribute to the operation. So thank you very much. I'll stop there and we'll go to the discussion. Well, thanks, Dr. George, and thanks, Dr. Baza, for those uh, great talks. This last section, we wanted to, to move beyond just the technical part of uh, radical prostatectomy to talk about the, the aftercare, which is incredibly important in, in helping improve patient outcomes, which is what um, the Music Collaborative is, is really all about. Um, Dr. George, I, I wonder if you could just expand a little bit on, on some of your comments about um, about our realization that ileus was the thing that caused a lot of readmissions and longer hospital stays and how the music video uh, has kind of impacted maybe your practice and how other surgeons and music are using it. Yeah, sure, thank you. Um, well, you know, we know that there's a number of reasons that patients can come back into the hospital. And that some of those things are just things that we can't prevent. If they are, uh, if it's a febrile illness, if it is, um, if it's a urine leak, if it's uh, if it's bleeding, um, those aren't things that we can anticipate and we can uh, work to prevent um, outside of operative technique, which we've kind of spent some time going over. Um, what we have noticed is that is is that the the number one modifiable cause is ileus or GI related complaints, and that's consistent when we look at uh, when we look at other data from national registries, such as the National Readmissions Database. And in that database, it's approximately 21%. Um, and so if, if we are able to modify that, and even if it's incrementally, I don't think there's a single thing that we can do that's going to eliminate it, but there's we try to stack lots of little things. And, and maybe that's um, a, 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 a ultra-low pneumoperitoneum. Um, that's the addition of, of minimizing uh, opioids post uh, post-prostatectomy. It is uh, the addition of uh, setting patient expectations and having them uh, increase their own knowledge about what to expect post-operatively. And I think that's where the Ilias video has been particularly helpful. And that video is not uh, specific to ileus, but it's in a number of other uh, post-operative concerns. I, I, I think of it as an FAQ uh, for patients post-prostatectomy. So it goes over the catheter and pain-related uh, uh, issues and activity and diet and how they can manage their own diet if they experience nausea. And so I find that it, it helps for them to self-manage um, before having to make a phone call to us. Great, thanks. And Dr. Baza, you presented a paradigm shifting uh, idea, I think for many of us, the idea of being able to send patients after a radical prostatectomy home the same day and to do it safely. Um, a lot of features to your, your program there. I think you, you went through a number of them, uh, the low pneumo, no drain, uh, pain medications, and, and really education being important. Can you just sort of talk about how you think that those have come together, and then we'll have some other questions from the other panelists. Yeah, I really want to reiterate what I said before, which is that, um, you know, you don't have to force it. And I really am not trying to force it on anyone. I don't want anyone to force it on their patients. The idea was just that, you know, we experienced back in 2016, we started seeing these patients who, and I'm sure you've all seen this, patients who are walking around on the patient ward the night of surgery. 
and they look better than us because we're all tired from doing surgery all day. And we're wondering, why is this guy staying in the hospital overnight? Like, we should let this guy go home. Uh, and so we just started trying it. And as you saw in the graphic that I showed with the bar chart, when we first started, it was like 20%. Uh, and then it went up 50%, 60%. And it just went up year after year because we got more comfortable with it. We got better at counseling the patients. The patients, I think, got more confident because we were able to sit, tell them that, look, we've been doing this for years and, you know, majority of patients go home and, um, you know, these are the things to look for. So I, I really think the education is the biggest part of it, because if the patient's not comfortable going home, never force them to go home, because God forbid, if you get a complication, which they're going to happen once in a while, that's just a disaster. So really, it's about setting the expectations, making sure the patients are comfortable. When the patients are comfortable, honestly, they want to go home. They'd rather be in their own bed with their family around them, uh, you know, eating regular food. And I mentioned the example of my mom when she had her lap coli. You know, she was having terrible nausea afterwards from the anesthesia, and she refused to stay in the hospital. She made us take her home, even though she had terrible nausea, couldn't even sit up. Uh, so people want to go home. So if you give them the option, I think what you'll find is that over time, uh, your, your comfort level will improve. Uh, and is it for everybody? I would say no, it's not for everybody. Honestly, it's not for everybody. Because if there's a surgeon who uh, very rarely does prostate, maybe you're doing two or three cases a month. Maybe you, you're still early in your learning curve. You don't really know what your outcomes are going to be. You don't know how often you have certain complications. So you're nervous about bleeding or something else. Uh, then this is not the time to do it. You know, wait until you've got a bigger experience. You're through your learning curve. You know what to expect. You know, if you've only done 10 prostatectomies so far, don't stop using drains if you're comfortable using drains. But if you've done 500 prostatectomies and you almost never have a leak, and it's less than 1%, then that's when you can start selectively leaving out the drain and then over time eventually get rid of the drain completely. So again, I think it's just an evolution. And I think all of us you know, have been doing this for a long time now. And if we look back at how we used to do it when we started, we actually find a big difference, but it didn't happen overnight. They were all little incremental changes that we instituted over time and we just got better and better. And so we learn from each other, we make little changes. And I think that's the key is just don't force it. Don't try to do too much too fast. Uh, but just consider it, use these strategies that have worked for me, and you'll probably come up with better strategies than I came up with. Like, for example, Rich was just telling us that he does tap blocks routinely at his hospital, and he has patients who have zero pain. Uh, that's phenomenal. If that's something you want to incorporate into this strategy, then you may find that it makes it even more possible for you to send patients home the same day. Dr. Sarrell, any questions? Uh, do you think that there's a, a the, the law of unintended consequences? Do you think that... Uh, as we push our patients who undergo kidney surgery or robotic prostatectomy out of the hospital within a day, do you think that you know, will, will unfortunately impact our reimbursement? We've already seen a dramatic drop in how we're compensated for these complicated procedures. Interestingly enough, currently a partial nephrectomy is considered an outpatient procedure and a nephrectomy is an inpatient procedure. So yeah, whoever obviously yeah. made that determination is not a surgeon. So I'd love your comment on that about the, the, the law of unintended consequences. We keep talking about lap coli. I know what a general surgeon gets reimbursed for a lap coli. Ooh, that would be not good if prostatectomy was placed at the same level as a lap coli. Go ahead. Yeah, I think that's a great point. And that's where it's going to kind of put the onus on our professional societies to protect us from that. So we really rely, you know, politically on, you know, the activities of our, of our, you know, PACs and the AUA in particular to help us with that. Uh, but they've already slashed robotic prostatectomy before we even started sending patients home same day, next day, whatever. They slashed it. They weren't waiting for that for an excuse, in other words. Um, 
But I agree with you. I think we have to be careful. You know, we don't want to send the message that, oh, yeah, this is no big deal. Don't worry about it, because then the patients might get too lax and not realize that sometimes bad stuff happens. And they think, oh, my gosh, you know, how come I had bleeding or I had an ileus or whatever? So, no, I think we need to be careful with the messaging. Uh, but the idea, really, what we're trying to achieve is if you look at a lap coli, for example, when lap coli was new, patients stayed in the hospital for up to a week afterwards. Uh, and now it's mostly outpatient. You know, delivering a baby used to be something where women would stay in the hospital three, four days after delivering a baby. Now they can go home the next day. Some of them go home the same day. Well, delivering a baby didn't become an easier operation than it used to be. Nothing changed. It's just our attitude has changed and patients' attitude has changed. And what we think about who needs to be in the hospital and who doesn't has changed. And patients increasingly don't want to be in hospitals. It used to be that patients felt more comfortable if they're staying in the hospital and they think, well, I'm safe. If I stay in the hospital for a week after my surgery, I'll be safe. Now their attitudes have changed, especially with COVID. But even before COVID, nosocomial infections and, you know, the guy in the bed next to them who's yelling and screaming all night and the nurse is coming in and checking their vitals in the middle of the night. You know, all of these things, I think, have made patients realize that if it's safe for me to be at home after the surgery, I want to go home as soon as possible. And that's really what we're trying to determine. If you're a surgeon who is experienced enough and knows their outcomes and knows that they can safely do the operation with a rare complication within the first 24 hours, that's who should try this. If you're still early in your learning curve and you're not comfortable yet, or maybe you don't do a lot of surgeries and so you have a higher complication rate, then don't force it. Just let them stay overnight. No problem. So that's kind of how I'd answer. I don't think there's a perfect answer to it, but I, I feel you. I know exactly what you're saying. This, the streamlined educational process that you've created for your patients is impressive to say the least though. I mean, that's yeah. the foundation of your plan is education. Yeah. It's critical, but it's also honestly a luxury item because I only do robotic surgery. And I recognize that most urologists in the country, it's only a piece of what they do and they're still doing stones and slings and this and that and whatever. And so not everyone's gonna have that luxury of having you know a whole team geared up to do teaching for robotic surgery. Uh, but that's where I think these music videos can really help. And that's where I think the music collaboration can really help because now each surgeon doesn't have to do it for themselves. We can all borrow from each other and have this you know, repository of patient education materials that everybody can use. So again, I'm a big fan of music. I think you're doing phenomenal work. I encourage you know, the surgeons who are a part of it to continue to do what you're doing. Um, and um, I hope maybe someday we can join. Great. Um... Well, I think we're at the point where we're going to draw the evening to a close. Um, I'd like to thank the Music uh, Coordinating Center uh, and the leadership there for agreeing to, to put on this workshop. I, I think it was really great. Um, <clears throat> Kershid Ghani, who's the director, thank you, Kershid. It's always a pleasure to work with you on, on anything, this in particular. Uh, my co-moderator, Dr. Sarl, uh, uh, again, somebody who I've known for probably 20 some years uh, as a resident and as a good friend and colleague. Uh, Dr. George, Arvin George, thank you for presenting the music uh, uh, information about what we've done. It's really been great. And to our two expert surgeons, Jason Hafron and, um, and Ronnie Abaza, just you know, tour de force teaching. Um, this is a session that uh, you know, as a surgeon, I, I could have spent another couple of hours looking at and talking about videos and going through things. I, I think those of us who, who operate in, and like to operate in, uh, I think anyone who does that is always wanting to get a little bit better. Um, this is a great way to do that, to be able to, to share ideas uh, and in a fashion like this, 
you know, where it's, it's a very supportive, constructive environment to, to learn from. Um, I, I think the music library is something that uh, is a great resource for people. And I hope uh, that we can, uh, we can use that. We're working on developing this uh, further, uh, getting more videos, um, more analysis of the videos, uh, to use them as, as teaching, not just for, um, for um, practicing surgeons, but also for residents, for trainees. And it's something that anyone around the world really can have access to. So we hope people will take advantage of that. And then the, the last session on, on sort of the post-operative care, I think is, is really eye-opening. And um, I think challenges us all to try to do uh, a better job than, than what we've been doing with the patient education, setting patient expectations before, uh, before the uh, procedure and, and helping them through the procedure and afterward, uh, which I think will lead to more satisfied patients and better outcomes in the long run. So thanks to the team here. Um, you guys are great. Uh, it's really been, uh, been a pleasure. We've had a lot of fun here tonight. I hope the, the audience uh, uh, for the webcast uh, has, has learned uh, at least half as much as I have. I, somebody said earlier that they've learned from this. I picked up a half a dozen things that I want to take back to my practice uh, starting tomorrow. I hope everybody else has had the same experience. So thanks very much. And uh, we'll do this again. We'll see you next time.